Ish times. I have said it a lot. You'd think I'd know it by now. No, it was bound to happen once. That's uh, a yeah, thing. That's true. 84. Actually, that's true. You I have another 84 up. good episodes. Not, not you know. I not holding Yeah, this that. one's ruined now. No, it's no, no, over. No. Right. I said 70 ish because he hasn't done all of them, and some of them have had no introduction like that at all. So it's, it is, it's it probably 70s, not 80s. That's true, and I had a few of them. Yeah, yeah. that's what I'm saying. So, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So welcome uh, to the Crash Chords Podcast. This is the point where you bring in content. Now. Yes. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> last night again with yeah. with I believe it or not oh. with Stephen stepping it up with um, the Sochi stuff with and talking about Oscars and talking about the Academy. Um, yes, me yeah. being relevant. Believe it or not. Yeah. yeah. The Grammys, rather. The old so man being relevant. I'm uh, I'm <laughs> going to talk a little bit at the top of the podcast about the Oscars because I had watched them last night and the musical things that happened. Um, one of the first musical numbers last night was actually Pharrell Williams performed his song Happy from the Despicable Me 2 soundtrack, which was nominated for Best Song this year. Um, it was w- perfect for that movie. And was fe- is it actually featured on his new record that just came out, Girl. Um... And the performance was a lot of fun. He performed, you know, he moved around, he went into the crowd. He had a ton of kids pretty much from the from age 5 to age 14 on stage dancing, like hundreds of them. Now that track, Happy, you said that was from his new album? It's on his new album as well, but it says from Despicable Me it's a, too. Yeah, originally. Oh, he wrote okay. it for Despicable Me too, but he's oh. put it on his new record. Um, sweet. Also, um, he went to the crowd a bit and did some crowd work, and he went up to some of the celebrities, and they danced with him, like uh, Amy Adams stood up and danced with him. and it, it was a fun performance. It was very engaging. I love that song. It really is just the, the, the perfect childhood song for me nowadays. It, it is a good, it's a good, fun, happy song. It really suits its title. <laughs> happy was a happy song? Don't, don't, I don't believe you. I really don't. Uh, you should. Okay. Um, other noteworthy things that happened. So the big awards in music were Best Score and Best Song. Best Song, obviously, to no one's surprise, Let It Go from Frozen 1 for Best Song, which, with all the buzz and how great it was, um, I'm not surprised it won. Uh, and then Best Score, surprisingly, actually, was Gravity, which was uh, won by the composer's name is Stephen Price. Best known for... And this is really strange. Like, the biggest movie he's done that I was able to find was uh, The World's End and Attack the Block, which are both Edgar Wright-related mm, movies. Interesting. So this is his book, first big, huge, huge movie. I mean, those movies are big. But... It's a very surprising win for the Oscars. I wouldn't have yeah. expected that to win in Oscars circles, although I was quite a fan of it because it served a purpose. The well, purpose was to make you feel tense. And even though there's sort of varying opinions on to, uh, as to who really enjoyed the, the film for that yeah. purpose, because people are looking for different things when they go to sci-fi. Yeah. It, as a sci-fi fan, especially fan of that uh, touting of the danger and the yeah. suspense and all that, it was the perfect thing for me. So I think it's a very deserved win. 
Um, although the thing about Gravity, though, is that it did last night what the pattern has been for the last couple Oscars, where there are obviously two clear contenders. This year it was Gravity and 12 Years a Slave. There were other movies that were good, but they were the two expected big winners. Most of the awards went to Gravity, but Best Picture still went to 12 Years a Slave. And that's what the, the pattern has been a lot, is Fair one enough. movie wins a lot of the, the other stuff. And then picture of the year goes to the other contender. Uh, the right. technical that's that's actually that's a great point. The the best movie of the year or something like that, the best of any of the super categories, is going to be one guy that wins like movie of the year and then like sweep the technical yeah awards, best score, best screenshots, best you know use of product placement. And then Best Actor, Best Actress are going to be farmed out from the other one or two that could have been yeah. Best Movie. Because you know what it is? They were into the same problem that we kind of ran into when we did our our little year Awards, in review. Yeah. Is because you're going to have crossovers there. And I think they really don't want too many crossovers right. either. Although it's, sometimes it's inevitable. Right. But, either, if but you're going to give a lot, of, a lot of props to all the individual talents behind a certain film sometimes there's that ineffable quality that leads to one film being all fully formed in the end so you know that's a good place to separate it no yeah that's for sure um other music news from the show um they did a tribute to judy garland all of her children were in the audience including miss liza minnelli who's a human cartoon character (laughs) <laughs> but but went along for the ride pretty well in the bits that Ellen worked her into. Um, but they did a tribute to Judy Garland, and of course that meant someone singing Somewhere of the Rainbow, and that was um, Pink. And she actually did a phenomenal job. It she's, was She's got a great voice. And it was very, very classic, very her singing in a red dress on stage with scenes from the movie playing behind her. It was did beautiful. Did she have spiky hair? Yeah, she was a spiky hair. Okay. Oh, no, it might have been combed over, but it was short. Okay. Because Evan and uh, the, at the Grammys, she has a very she has a very stage present voice. The neat thing about her performance though is before they did that tribute, Whoopi introduced it, and Whoopi came up on stage, and you got a glimpse walking on stage, but she showed it off. She was wearing black and white lined stockings with ruby red shoes. Huh. <laughs> she, as a, a nod to the movie. Um, also, they did as they always do an in memoriam for people who passed away in the industry this year, but then they. Took it to the next level by having Bette Midler sing Wind Beneath My Wings afterwards. So if your eyes were dry at that point, they weren't after. Mm. See, okay. And that's what Keeping one song I don't toes. get. But Wind Beneath the Wings, honestly, no emotional connotation at this point in my life. I'm so past that song, specifically. Good for you for having a frozen heart. No, it's <laughs> incredibly overplayed. It's like, you want to feel sad, we'll not. play this. I'll almost be with him on this one. It's tropey. It's a little tropey. I think that there's other songs that are still pretty overplayed, and yet they have a more timeless quality, such as Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Well. Even with the ukulele, it's a good song. That's right. Yes, even with the ukulele. Um, And then also, the other big thing was uh, um, they had Adina Menzel perform Let It Go live. However, before she went on, John Travolta, who shouldn't really be allowed to speak anymore anyway, um, got up and completely butchered her name. Like, completely butchered it, and it showed that it threw her off a little bit. Which is a shame, because she's a beautiful singer, the song's very good, and it showed that it threw her off a bit. Ellen, of course, tried to help clean up after the wor- after the fact, but it's just like, you'd think if you're a presenter on stage, and you know you're presenting a very specific person, you'd re- pay attention and do some research, or, or know what you're doing. On that topic, just a little aside, 
I have it completely baffles me how people these actors they work their entire lives to get to this point all of a sudden they're there they're at the Oscars how could you not have anything to say some of them get up there and they're just they, they got nothing you know so they go back to the age old you know well I'd like to thank my agent <laughs> I'd like to thank my mom and everything which is all sweet and everything but sometimes that's that's it it's like two seconds um, and they're choked up and they leave but you'd think like you'd, you'd expect you're usually like one in sometimes one in five sometimes even less of a chance that you will win that's a pretty big that that's a so the odds mention. are big. You you should come there with something a little bit prepared. I'll tell you how, because people who are self-deprecating and that's a lot in the arts will think there's no way I can win. So why would I bring anything? That's why it happens. Mm, and on Sometimes. the flip side, I'll say I, that, that the vast it. majority of people who are making it to the stage of being nominated to the Oscars are going to be de- developing a very healthy ego and thus feel like they've done quite a bit of good however i will they are. actually however on this. actually however i will say Thank that the there it isn't all egos because and this isn't so much music related it's just awesome related um, i can't remember the actress's name now i'm going to blank on it but she's a young actress who was one best supporting actor actress. actress for 12 years a slave it was her first movie out of college 12 years a slave and she won an award and her speech was probably one of the best speeches in the history of the Oscars. It was very much, th- I did this, I'm empowered, and it's proof that your dreams can come true. That's it. See, that's I, beautiful. And it was that's gorgeous. That's the thing. How, how moving is that? Yeah. As inspiration. That's the thing. When it's something as broad as the Oscars or something that you know is going to have a lot of uh, ratings and whatnot, why not, why not, if you're going to be in a position of, to influence people and inspire people, that's your, that's your time to shine. I know, it's but some people take to it pretty far, lightly. too. Take it pretty far, too. Speaking it's, of people who take it too far, the only music... Well, I think the Oscars in general are sometimes taken too the far. Only but mus- since they exist, why not use it for good? Right. But speaking of taking it too far and using it for evil, speaking of overplayed and larger-than-life characters, the only song performance I really didn't enjoy the whole night was um, U2 performed. Again? Yeah. Well, they did the title song for the um, Ildris Elba... Uh, Mandela movie, okay. it's a Mandela movie, which I heard good things about. I haven't seen, but um, they perf- you know they performed that. I guess they were probably in best song category too. Although I will admit, the song it was guitar, bassist, both acoustic, um, Bono, and then the drummer on just a snare drum. It it was better than a lot of their other new stuff, just because it was very pared down and very well, subdued. The uh... U2 has sort of a sitting place with a lot of these openings. They also did uh, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Kimmel when he moved to The Tonight Show yeah. just recently. It was only a couple weeks ago. He you was, mean Jimmy Fallon? Jimmy Fallon, excuse me, excuse me. Yes, Jimmy Fallon. They played the the uh, the opening show that Jimmy yeah. Fallon had as, as the Tonight Show host. And it was actually a special rooftop concert at Top of the Rock. Yeah. So which is pretty, you know. Awesome. Pretty yeah. I even <laughs> I even hesitated to use the word epic. Yeah. I might throw it there because you're basically playing with the city surrounding you, which is kind of a dream, I guess, for certain people. Um, even the way I feel about U2's recent music, though, I still say that Bono has not lost the voice. No, he can sing. Sure, there's no denying that. Um, yeah. I do have one issue with the Oscars, and that I believe, "Do You Want to Build a Snowman?" is actually a better song. No, you're wrong. Because that's no, that song was great, and no. I actually enjoy it. A it's lot a great more. song. It's not a great Oscar song, because the emotion and the presence and the the larger than life quite no, the ending of it 
where she gets all sweet and tired and her sister has basically cut her out of her life and she's all like, do you want to build a snowman? Like, nearly it's breaking not the, down. It's, it's not beautiful. the same performance power as Let It Go. Let It Go is a performance song that's built for the Oscars. That song, first of all, is two people and it's not as easily performed. It's not built for a show like the Oscars. I disagree. Not, th- not familiar, I abstain. <laughs> Fair. Be that as it may, though, this year's Oscars, I will have to say... Actually, probably the most enjoyable one I've watched in a while. Ellen DeGeneres did a very good job as host. She was funny, she was quippy, and uh, I enjoyed it. As I said off-air, I think Ellen DeGeneres should be our next, next Secretary of State. Because <laughs> she is just that kind of a person. I, I believe if we could send her to, like, to get topical, like Iran, Syria, and just, like, I, she would get stuff talk done. Talk it out, talk it out, talk it out. She would really get <laughs> stuff done. Because she'd be like, you know, you know, you're really, you're not, you're not being a very nice person, and I, I, feel I think like, you just wrote a pretty great comedy sketch for yeah, SNL, right and they could really use some right now. I think Ellen so, could you know, produce that one. Write that out. Send it. Yeah, okay. Send it over. Um, <laughs> so that'll wrap on talking about the Oscars. I mean, I w- I thought it was it was a pretty good show though, and the performances all in all were were pretty entertaining. I, I've got a wrap on the Oscars here because I think they're they have a they have a little mandate that they need to sort of step it up because. There is this pervading notion that, yeah, we're kind of sick of the Oscars. Frankly, it's been a pervading notion for many, many years now. Because there is that idea that it's just self-aggrandizing a bunch of rich people, uh, you know, that's shaking hands to other rich people. But that's, you know, again, it's as I said, they are in a position where they do have the power to influence the younger do. generations. And they do. They can. So I think the the reason you might have noticed a little more pizzazz this year or a little more quality or heartfelt is because they realize that and they're trying to i think mm. they did it with the grammys as this yeah. year and i think they did it here with the oscars is all these award shows it's it's competition but healthy competition right it makes sense more pressing the art forward as in trying to set the divisions or create a state of competition between yeah. the artists themselves oh in wh- other words i'm not gonna hate on it this year oh, right one other thing <laughs> very very short um, as expected, John Williams was nominated for Book Thief. He didn't win because the guy from Gravity did, but he was nominated, and he's probably nominated for every movie he's ever written a soundtrack well, for. Well, that says something. To the he's guy probably been nominated. Yeah. If anybody would have been, it would have been him, nominated twice in one year. For Again, the same see, category. even that yeah. in itself is 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 uh, has me thinking that maybe there's a little bit of an uh, artistic advancement there in yeah. their choices because John Williams would be be a staple. Yeah. Right? It'd be safe. As much as I love John Williams, be safe. The fact that they went for the Gravity guy says they were really looking at what the music delivered in the film. Yeah. Um, but moving off the Oscars and on to my pick for this week. So, uh, yes. I decided to go with something contrary to Steve's belief, and I know he'll argue it, I didn't pick this because he's a 90s artist. As much as I like the 90s, and this is no secret, um, I picked Beck because he hasn't put out a new record since 2008. And this new record... Um, called Morning Phase is the album we're doing this week. I picked because I know Beck most recently for his work on the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack. Scott Pilgrim soundtrack, oh, when did that come out? A couple years ago now, I guess. 2007-ish? A 10 or 11. 10 or 11. Yeah, no, it's 11. 2010 or 11. Um, he wrote, so the band in the movie Sex Bomb, led by Scott Pilgrim, have two or three, no, four songs they perform in the movie. He wrote all of those songs plus his own version of the ballad that Scott sings to Ramona, entitled Ramona. He wrote a full version for the soundtrack that sounds actually a lot like the songs that are on this new record, um, which is the most recent work I know he's done. That and uh, 
Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. I know he did some work on as well. Yeah, but he did the the one track there. But yeah. um, no, seeing as what you said about the '90s, I think his his '90s sound is definitely closer to my tastes than anything else we've picked out of the '90s so far. <laughs> Plucked. Well, it's, <laughs> shall we say? It's yes. Beck. He was crazy. I don't know if that's the way to put it. Here's Eccentric my, here's and my, unique. My he of that back. Yeah. He it, kinda... he, it's that whole lo-fi sound that really, really gets me. That around the time he came about there in the early 90s, after your whole uproarious punk and super lively pop that you get in the 1980s, and then the whole pervasive gangster rap of the early 90s following suit, there were these other artists like, like Beck that just wanted to chill. I think that that's something to be said for, because... It's in line with those other early alt stylings, the kind you get from Elliot Smith and Stephen Malkmus with Pavement, even the slow core that we see with Low all around this time. It's the period of the 90s that I'm really most interested in, to be honest, and I think it was the most influential periods of the 90s, too, because especially um, when you consider the influence it has to the whole low-key indie and alt styles that we see up to the present day, and even the whole folk revival that's still happening as we speak. Essentially, it's folk within ever-modernizing edge. This is to say, the majority of Beck's work. And I believe artists like Beck were the paradigm shift for that genre, which isn't to put down the earlier folk, the kind you get in the 60s and 70s, but there's a clear divide between an era dominated by Simon and Garfunkel and then dominated by Beck, Elliot Smith, and the like. It's a divide that I chalk up to sonic experimentation and an ability to pool various influences together. Since then, I think uh, Beck has done pretty well for himself. Uh, he adapts pretty well to the changes around him because I think there's a sort of a timelessness in his lo-fi sound. So that's my rundown. And just on a personal note, since he mentioned it, the first time I really got into Beck was when I heard his cover of the 1980 Corgis song, a British band, Everybody's Gotta Learn Sometime, which was the feature song for the 2004 movie Eternal Sunshine of a Spotless Mind, one of my favorite films and soundtracks. Right, whereas for me, I got into Beck in high school with his big single from, I believe, his first record, Though I may be misquoting that, maybe it was his second, but uh, "Loser," which is, of course, you know, everyone knows it, it, it's one Soy of the songs. Umbre de dor, which I think I'm actually still pronouncing right. <laughs> I'm a loser, baby. So why don't you kill me? And "Loser" is like one of the earliest ones. Earliest. Earliest. And the funny thing about that particular track is that that the groove, and I think this has come up before, is so incredibly similar to uh, what is it? Coming down the mountain. Do you know that? Uh, what the hell was it? You know the name. She'll be coming down no, the mountain. No, no. Okay. No. <laughs> I don't know. You went in that direction. This name will come to me over the course of the next few That's minutes. Fine. Just keep going. But, <laughs> but, uh, but my per- so- wait, wait, wait. My personal note. Everybody got to say their own stories. But I, when I delved into alternative, I had never even heard of Beck. And it was kind of when I first really got into alt and indie and the folkier side of modern music, I actually went backwards. And Beck was one of the last people I really got into That's what I'm when saying. I was exploring that. It was it was Eternal Sunshine for me, which is 2004. So yeah. 2004, he had already been around for several years. No, I knew I knew Loser, but I never listened to him. Yeah, see, so yeah, you went back far. I went actually... 94, I, is that I right? retrograded back yeah. to the earlier <laughs> 90s uh, in, in the musical expansion. But he, he I view him as like the godfather of the alternative sound. That's what I just said, essentially. Yeah. He is responsible for that. He's the paradigm shift and He's, sort of shifting it over. Yeah, um, Mainly Cordial. because of that folk influence. Yeah. It was... He, he brought something different, but yet approachable and uh, familiar to the 
to the music of the time. I'm telling you, you guys should also go back and listen to Elliot Smith because it's the same line sort of stuff. Not not identical, of course. They're individual artists, but they. I feel like they were born out of the same ilk. That they were part of that reaction period in the mid '90s, early mid. Right. So now we're gonna look at what he's done lately this year because um was it la- this year or last year? This, this album year. came out last week. This last week. There we go. 2014, and he hasn't released an album since 2008, which is a pretty long gap for for Beck. So, let's see what he's been up to for... Probably not the entirety of six years, but... So, well, right, because as we cited, he's worked on Scott Pilgrim and... Exactly. ...other things. Um, So this this album is called Morning Phase. The first track is called Cycle. Um, As far as intro tracks go, it's exactly that. It's 40 seconds long, it's instrumental... Uh, it's sweeping violin. Yeah, it's essentially a track that sets up the second track and goes right along with it, which is called Morning. It's very, I don't want. It's very graceful. Yeah, the the the, the intro. Sweeping. It's, it's got serene. all that perfect cadence stuff, the kind that you'd find again. It's almost a little old fashioned in that regard, and I mean like classical era old yeah. fashioned. But it 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 sets the stage very well. It's 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 almost ambient in of itself. Yeah. It's very flourishing strings. It's designed. To set up morning. That's its purpose. It's to get you into this The chord song. progression is, is similar. Not quite, yeah. but it's... um. But I'm telling you, as soon as that transition comes, it's it's like it's like laying down to just rest for a bit because the, the chord progression it shifts to, dominated by the guitar and all the other stuff, like, it it is sincerely tranquil. I really do mean sincere. This, there's something about the vibe that, that immediately brought me back, it seemed, to uh, that tone that i got from eternal sunshine which may yeah. seem like a strange comparison to to you know uh mark up a, a movie that really only had one of his tracks at the same time i believe it was no accident the fact that they chose beck to sort of be the headliner track there because it fit the the tone of the film sure his music is is very very soothing but lo-fi means yeah and and morning is a track that as far as starter tracks go it's very much a sleepy and relaxing track which, when you're singing about morning, and singing about morning, mind you, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. Not with the U. So it's morning as in waking up in the morning. This is going to be it. What, what? It was, for me, this this song, uh, it was the familiar drawn vocals of Beck. It was that it, that kind of higher register than than what I really would have expected from him. Uh, this late in his career, I'm surprised he was hitting it as high as he was. It, it was... Comfortably numb by Floyd without that fear aspect, without that scary aspect that you got in Floyd's version. It was that same emotion, but on the other side of the coin in this case. And that was one of the best aspects of this song. And I saw that comparison, especially when uh, invoking Comfortably Numb. At the same time, when I consider the album as a whole here, um, I almost feel like that was more evident later that feel that was similar to Comfortably Numb because the fear does kind of come in a little bit later in this album or some tenseness and yet this track itself is just pure tranquility. Yeah. I mean, a, it, a twang of sadness. Well, though. maybe maybe he was seeing us on the dark side of the moon instead. I mean, it, it, but it <laughs> uh, has that, that very work. Floyd kind of a feel to it. Drawn everything. Everything drawn. Everything long. And that just, it it's full groove and this is the Beck I know and love well I have an interesting observation here it's gonna be an odd comment at least but this feels it feels real to me meaning less like a gimmick less like 
music to fill an album or certainly not for any marketing purposes. It's, it's, it's real or genuine or born of a specific emotion that I, I, I can only see, I can just see him coming up with this, you know, with no necessity to put it on an album, but the fact that it's there is just so pleasing to, to you and me. But, you know, that might be a more... Saying it's real might be a more extreme way of just putting our usual phrase when we say that there's an honesty there. It's honest and it feels natural. Yes. It feels very natural. And I think one I'm of the... Walking through the thesaurus. <laughs> right. Well, I think one of the through lines for this song that really got me is that he's using the guitar not as an instrument that takes the lead. It's, as I described earlier, it's this creamy center to the song that kind of moves you through it. It's always there and it's quite delicious. But it's not the focus. <laughs> it's not the only taste that you get. But you're, you're selling something right now? <laughs> but it's very prominent. Look, you guys can use metaphors, so can I. Shut up. The point is, is that it really kind of moves you through this song and continues to give this feeling of relaxation. Now, I'll expand that a little even further because the creamy center you're talking about, the fact that it's always there, the guitar is ever-present, is because it, it this actually defies uh, a usual critique of mine, the whole four chord progression thing it it defies it in every sense because every verse here and these are very long verses that four chord progression is present but it doesn't bother me it doesn't bother me at all because of the context surrounding it there's such ease to it all such finesse and here's just a description of some of the things that are going on which i think support this uh finesse factor first of all the way the guitar works with the rich reverb surrounding his vocals and that's that's uh true throughout this album in general a lot of reverb on it um just because it you know it, it thickens it out a little bit it, it provides a little more majesty to the vocal and that kind of stuff again another thing here the reserved strolling drum pattern which is just very steady and it as that it strolls it, it it's never in your face it never clutters everything up anything up it's just it's just there to sort of walk you through the song and keep you fixed, transfixed even, on those on that four-chord progression that is your mood setter. And then, like, rainfall, this occasional comping by the keyboard, just sparsely throughout. I also, a uh, note for his melodies. You get these little vocal glissandi just tapering off the ends of his melodies. And also, one of my favorites here... These sparingly used harmonic violin notes that just drag across certain lines that do actually provide a little bit of an eeriness. Not not fear at all, but just slight unsettlingness. It it it, it uh A dash of the fantastical. I was even gonna say it brings out the sad a little bit. I I that I don't hear. Well More... this was a very, very minor thing. Remember I said sparingly used. These are these are just I know, I know what you're talking about. I do remember very what light, you're talking about. Very light. But it's it uh, gives it a eerie, not sad, but eerie. Okay, that was the first thing I said. So yeah. I'll stick with eerie that. Eerie is right. I eerie, eerie, eerie. I definitely agree with more. All right. Um, um, but that's it's it. Like I said, that's a little more towards the fantastical side. Yeah, that's, it was a really nice, really nice color throughout. I think that's the key word to hone in on here. It's just marvelous use of color for a song that really doesn't change that much. The verses and choruses, you know, the verses are very, very long, as I said, and then the choruses do have sort of a grandness nature. Um, a grandness to them. And then just these small bridges, which might be my only critique here if I were to have one, is that the bridges, they're sort of weak, in my bridges, opinion. Bridges? There was one. Oh, no, they recur a couple times. They Did recur, they? They recur mm. before every chorus. Huh. 
then it to a certain from a certain perspective yeah from a certain perspective they're not even bridges pre-choruses pre-choruses or just imaginations of the pre-chorus or part of the choruses themselves yeah it's it's um defined by by the line but can we start it all over again that's essentially one of the only lines here to this makeshift bridge as i'm calling it and it's just a couple of chords like two chords which is sort of lost in the transition, I think, before it breaks out with the chorus, this morning, woke yeah. up this morning. And uh, I, I just think it's a very it's a very harrowing tune. This Maybe song... harrowing isn't the, quite the right word, but it's, no. it, it is moving. And it, I mean that in the truest sense. Yeah, this song is definitely very engaging and very moving. And the thing I also like about it is it, from the very beginning, shows off something that I've come to expect from Beck in most of his songs, that... He uses sound bites and, and, and effects, but not in a way where it's tropey or overused or even even standoutish. A lot of it is very much to layer and blend the mixing. And the mixing True. on this album is very key. Good or bad, it's a very key part of a lot of the songs on I this album. I mix, think mixing is stellar on this yeah. album. I would at, at least in that in that field, I think it's uh this this track probably is the shining example of it. Yeah. Um, there are some but we do see too. it later. At least in mixing, is a very very high marker. Yeah, actually, uh, the next track, "Hard as a Drum," is another excellent example of that. Right. Well, let's see here. There's there's one other thing I do want to mention though about this first track, and that is um, the track. climax. Oh, that was the second track technically, if you don't count the first, if you don't count the intro. Well, <laughs> but, I numbered the intro number one, so we're gonna count it yeah. secondly. <laughs> yeah, let's go by numbers here. In either case. There are climaxes to this. I think also mark it as one of the uh, signature tracks in this album. Not just because it's first, but again, the t- the title album the album title is is morning phase, and this is morning. So you get that birth or rebirth, however you want to see it. And the climaxes are are pretty pretty intense when you follow them. And that's intense for Beck because yeah. Beck always does everything with a little su- su- subtle touch. And uh, one of those moments. You hit almost around the 310 mark, where he harmonizes over himself now and then throughout the track, but there are moments where it all comes together just so beautifully, Mm -hmm. because you don't always accept it as two or more voices throughout the track. Usually it's just one voice, but when you do accept it as two voices, it's it's riveting, like that, that mark at 310. It's this E major 7 chord, where it's just, I think it's all him. He might have even layered himself four times to make that full chord. And it's a very pointed moment over the course of a track that is, is, is fairly long and you're just meant to chill out to. That is a riveting point. This is, I hesitate to call this minimalists, but does a good uh, job. I, I'd <coughs> say there's a little more than minimalism going on here, but I, I can see where you would pull that from. Um... And I think it's a it's a very strong start to a record that that you know gives me high hopes for for what's to come. It does. And uh, and hard as a drum doesn't really disappoint either. So hard as a drum is a beautiful second track that that blends very well with the first, with the second track. This third track um, is very engaging from the beginning. It has a very steady drum beat that's a, almost you know emulating that heartbeat. Um, and this is where this is a song where he starts to use a lot more effects. He he goes a lot deeper. That's that's the first thing you notice. He's taking 
he's hitting the lower register right away with his uh, guitar work. It may very he's well be a same... bass. It may be a bass acoustic. Yeah, you know, it's possible. I'm not sure the, about the, that. The level of depth that he's hitting on it is just. It, it seems to be a little bit outside your standard guitar range, or tw- definitely towards the lower end of the guitar range. Could be retuned for all we know. Either way, that it's got a very heavier on the on the darker side of the piano as well, and the the whole thing that brings these two together is that he's using he's hitting the same register with his vocals, so it it really does a great job of of uh, changing that same sort of uh, even the doubling and tripling he does, but that same sort of drawn out high pitch it it changes the whole feel of that those same notes he's hitting. Well, I have one note here though that the um. The, the piano work, I don't think it was so much r- lower register, especially when we get the piano later. It, it's almost like these little jazzy solos that are more mid-range to high, and I think they actually juxtapose the uh, uh, the guitar fairly well. But the thing that really, I think, separates this, especially in comparison to the to the previous track, is that it's a little bit more rhythmically driven. Yeah. Something you really can't say about the first, I mean, about Morning, is because Morning is just so steady, it really is meant to keep it's you hypnotized. It's waking you up, yes. Mm. This is, you know, you, is kind a of, drum. you could groove to this a bit. You get two very rhythmically oriented words in the title. Yeah. And, and also, this is where we first see him start to do something that he's going to do quite a bit through this record. He, that low guitar that we're talking about in the low register that he sings in parts of this song pretty much hit the same note. And it's, a, it's just an interesting effect that I can't think of I've heard. I mean, I'm sure I've heard before, but not quite like this. He, he works his voice in a way that it blends with an instrument on the, on the same level. We've had artists on here that I've actually said the same thing about. But it's, I guess to me, it's never been Beck, as pronounced as this. Beck's got a little more distinction to his voice, um, especially the twang he has in his voice and the, the breadth of his, of his syllables that does work differently with instruments. And that, uh, speaking to that point... Well, part of that, again, is maybe the, the reverb, because the reverb can do funny things when you uh, add it together. It almost has the effect of... You almost think he's in the falsetto range yeah. for certain moments. Um, he does hit higher notes here, though, than I remember him hitting in the past. I mean, I'm sure yeah, he has. Yeah, that's, that's the odd part of it. And in this song, in, he's in a Heart is a Drum, yeah, and his voice is beautiful on this record. I mean, he his singing is definitely solid. But one thing I didn't get in Morning is the depth of lyrics that I thoroughly love. The imagery... Because Morning was pretty lyrically, but it wasn't the same level of, of diving into the the more esoteric imagery that I wanted from Beck. And here we got, we, uh, well, we don't know if it's the chorus or not. It might just be another verse. Nothing is repeated as a verse in here, but the line, Everyone, if they drown from the undertow, need to find someone to show me how to play it slow. And then he ends it with the line, and just let it go and that super drawn out syllable work beautiful oblique how i love it and thinking it makes me think and that's what i always liked about especially the earlier beck he he likes to make people think and try to figure out exactly what the connotations are in his lyrics and i love this well, line see, for i don't it. think you can make that that distinction between earlier back and later back i really think beck was a fairly consistent well no i mean earlier as in earlier this type of music oh. i go to beck because of that okay i follow you well 
I do think that there was a little more of a 60s and 70s touch in, in uh, Hard as a Drum. Yes, I would agree. Well, I think that's also in its kind of, I don't want to say thinness, maybe hollowness. Just this... You know, it's hollow, but yet, not by comparison, the kind of stuff you're going to see later on this album. No, I, I'm not going to say everything in comparison, but sometimes you do have to treat this... this the Beck's discography is so thin in a way yeah and this album is so thin in places apart from little ambient drones here and there string flourishes that's really what that's the filler um once you take that out you're left with a very thin backdrop yeah so it's it's all in relative terms um but the uh i do think this was a little bit droney perhaps at least at the end fitting though it was fitting and i still enjoyed it quite well i think the end dragged out just a little bit just a little bit. But my even... favorite part of this, though, is the piano, and that actually was more prevalent in the end, so it's kind of back and forth for me. I still think it's a fairly strong track. Um, and also that the beat of this track, because you're so engaged with that rhythm, it, it tends to disguise the sectional barriers here yeah. between like verses and choruses to make it seem as sort of one entity. It's the same creamy feeling I was referring to with the guitar in the first track, but in this is that drum that kind of is the through line through the whole song. Exactly. And keeps you moving through. And speaking of moving through, we will move right on through to the fourth track on the record. Um, this song is called Say Goodbye. So this song, by the title alone, you could tell, but it's very much a Wanderer's song, a very much a, this is where we hit some hard, Beck-influenced Southern rock sound. And yes, that's, it, it's thematically fits a more country Southern rock feel. Yes. Which is a little bit different for Beck. And this is, it, it lacked a lot of what, of, of the more modern infusion we were talking of before. This one really felt, harkened back to old school southern rock and in that case while it does have the 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 more attitude less content feel of mourning or heart is a drum it 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 lost it lost that modern edge that that separated it well i even noticed early that heart is a drum had a little bit of an old-fashioned touch to it but is certainly not so prevalent as what we see here this um it, it also changes the mood of the album a little bit, not just because of a, a, a genre shift, but it's more of a trudging track. It, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's got a little more tension in it, the kind that we don't get earlier on, where yeah. we're just sort of at peace or, with the, again, the twang of sadness. This is sort of thickening out the tension. And, of course, when I say trudging, I mean it in the lightest of ways because this is Beck we're talking about. But it's that southern rock, as you said, even the, the country feel, Partially, I think, due to some of the minor chord work that you see in the middle of that progression, because it's just another four chord progression again, a little bit blander this time. I think I notice it, despite that I think it's a shorter track than than Morning. I do notice it here. I wouldn't say so. blander. I would definitely say simpler. I still was getting a nice. <laughs> well, it, it's four chord progression. You can't be any more. I mean, they're the equal levels of of complexity or simplicity, however you want to see it. No, no, but bland. Blend just got a, a kind of a negative rider I don't really feel here because it did feel sweet. It did feel engaging. I'm tacking on that negative rider though. I really feel a, a distinct difference between this and morning you, in terms of a delivery of that progression. You really can't tell him he can't say bland because bland no, is no, a complete no, no, no. opinion I'm, word. No, and no, he's but I'm saying, voicing his opinion. Yeah, and I'm arguing that this is my opinion and I have a difference of opinion. John's doing <laughs> his classic you're wrong argument. Where yes. he just says you're wrong. He's been doing that all day. You don't even know. Really? Yeah. Don't even know. Yeah. I'll well, thankfully, right I have. Here. I was at work instead of with you two knuckleheads. Yeah. 
um, knucklehead. <laughs> but that's where I want. I want to point. But I want to point. I got a real difference of opinion on this. I didn't feel that bland. I didn't feel any. I don't know. Are you feeling divorced here or something? I don't. No, that's not the matter of divorce. It's not a matter of of, of the theme at all. No, it's it's. All right, I'll tell you one thing. Partially, maybe it is a little bit connected to the genre shift, just slightly, because I don't connect as much with Southern rock or, or, or country as much as I do uh, everything that I described in the beginning about Beck, the things that made Beck unique, that, that made him the paradigm shift. So my apologies if part of that is, is driven by the genre shift. But I think it's more about just that it really trudges, and I don't think it's in the best of ways this time. There is tension there, and the tension is the biggest thing it has going for it. The problem is it's just not developed, and this is why I think it feels bland, is because once the tension is set up in the beginning, you feel that all the way to the end. It doesn't really change in a way, in a way that I expect that type of emotion to change. See, I feel like I don't expect that so much from a track like Morning, which, yes, I'm going to be touting that for the rest of this album, because I think it's, for all intents and purposes, a brilliant track, and that he can get away with it there. He can get away with that with that sameness throughout the track. And even then, the, the chorus uh, flourishes are... They, they do provide variety in that track, and you don't see that much variety here. This is why I am invoking the term bland. One more thing, and that is the banjo, which, if anything, could really needed to solidify this as a country track. It was a banjo thrown in the middle, and John made an interesting point uh, around here, but what I didn't notice earlier on, because, again, I didn't find it true in Morning, and that was the fact that Beck has this little tendency to throw in these little random instruments here and there. Uh, whether they necessarily fit or not, and they do their solo thing. They're always well mixed. They always do blend in terms of, you know, volume leveling and whatnot, but whether they really serve the track is, is sort of up to you. So, for instance, in Morning, there were those uh, electric piano interludes, which I thought blended perfectly. But now here we're thrown with the banjo, and I feel like it fit a little bit less in terms of the context of the song, maybe more so just because it's a country track, but just because it's sort of countryish or sort of southern rock feel that warrants the need for banjo? Eh, I don't think so. Only because that banjo interlude was just sort of yet again bland to me. Not so I, much the second half of it than the first half. I will I will I will definitely say the banjo felt out of place. That, See, uh, that I disagree that it felt out of place. I just feel like it was I, I know I just it was just, just sort of dumped a lot of like well maybe it was, this maybe uh, that no, no, it depends no. on perspective. The banjo here. was unfulfilled and its its purpose was unfulfilled. What it was trying to do, and what it did, are 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 very much separate entities here. What it was trying to do was create, in, in my opinion, create a real emotional twang using its sound. I think its just candidates. a twang. I would a just real say twang. twang. I felt very little motion in it. And no, that's what it was trying, but it was trying to do an emotional twang of sadness, of loss, and this idea well, of saying one word I associate with a banjo, it's the word twang. <laughs> exactly, but that's exactly it, and I think that yeah. all it really did was be a banjo. I, I put it, uh, and you know, the <laughs> way I put, the way I put it was, Beck has a penchant for using unusual cadences. That's how he does it. He likes to pick something that sort of fits a role 
but doesn't quite fit the song role he's going for. And in this case, he's doing the opposite. It right, well, fits this a is, song this is gonna, role, I, but doesn't quite fit the role he's going for. I, I, I quoted you here because I think this was one of the first noticeable instances of it, but it's a lot truer later in the album than it is here. I will agree with Matt in one point that, frankly, there is some... There's a split between this banjo. You can divide it between an A and a B in this instrumental. The A is is this uh, more rhythmic banjo, which is so steady it really does strike me as pointless. The B is a little bit more interesting, and, and uh, I almost wrote it off until Matt called me on it. It really is... It's more more in line with what we just got last week. Again, strange that we should be doing this only... More lively, yeah. You don't see a lot of banjos. I don't think we've had a single banjo featured on any album we've done since and yet here we have two in a row of course this is just one one uh in, in insert essentially for one track here in this album it's not like this is banjo dominated well there were probably banjos in carolina chocolate drops probably yes. okay i forgot about that one that's true but yeah and that's it that, those are the three <laughs> but yeah no i think that 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 what we're all essentially saying about this track is that it is definitely not as good as the previous but it still had some redeeming qualities, but there was a little bit of a hint of repetitiveness comparatively to the rest of the album so far. However, the next track, Blue Moon, however, hooked me for a whole different set of reasons, although now I'm seeing the pattern that John's talking about, about interesting instruments that are featured in a song briefly and then flutter away. It's because really there's one just to show featured how, how... in this track as well, which I didn't know what it was called, and Steve actually told me. Um, the thing that really hooked me about this track is that it's got a great mix. One of the this better mixes... This is the mixes... very end, do you realize, that we're going to straight yeah. to the end of this track first. If you want to do it in that order, you're more than welcome. Well, I mean... Okay, well, then let's start from the beginning. So, the the song does start off with a more stated drum than in previous tracks. It was a minor heartbeat sound in, in, in Hard as a Drum, but now here, we're actually kind of getting a more stated drum sound. It's still not it's taking sort of, I, over. I find it as sort of a circular dynamic drum pattern. Yeah, almost tribal. Almost, yes. And this actually goes well with the more arena voice. The... Uh, the morning and hard as a drum is definitely more of a crooner or a whiner in the best possible way <laughs> emotional connotation this is not anthem but it approaches there much more readily this is something you would expect in arena rock it's definitely a larger than life voice as opposed to the more candid homegrown of the previous songs and yet, that said, I was very disengaged with the first verse. I didn't. It really didn't grab me. I think maybe the chorus had a little more depth in it, uh, especially on that moment um, where, where the quote, "Don't leave me on my own." That, that had a that had a little more to it. And I think that I, I agree with you on that. Also, one. more modern here. That's another thing. Yes, this is not one of those seasons oh, yes. where we're looking at you know 1670. This is more of a classic Beck feel. Yeah. But I think it was because uh, the vocals were a little bit easier to understand. Or maybe even a lot of bit easier in some cases. The lyrics were shining through a little bit more, and I think this song had definitely had the weaker lyrics for me on the album. Um, just I lost a lot of flavor to them, and I, I wasn't really grooving with that. And everybody knows I like I like words. I groove with one thing, and that was in the middle. That interlude uh, of beats. There was a, there was this little interlude, just a little instrumental, which almost seemed like a layered guitar thing, like almost felt like three guitars not, not something incredibly complicated but it, it was it was pretty groovy uh not really followed up up on bleh, up upon but i don't think uh really needed to be but uh, it's it's tricky that that was a little bit of a hole for me 
I think in terms of uh, maybe I don't have the same problem with it as I did back at the banjo solo, but then again, maybe I did. You, This is really up in the air, really up in the air as to whether you think it works or not. I was into this groove. Maybe someone's not going to be into this groove, and then they're not going to see it as a whole. They'll see it as integrating, but then they're not going to be into it. Really bizarre how this can go back and forth. Well, yeah, I mean, like for me, I thought that this song had a really great mix to it, and that I didn't really feel like I fell in those holes that you did. Um, I'll admit, I don't think it was possibly as strong as the earlier tracks but it was de definitely back back going back to a more modern sound um i think this is the moment where it sounded more thin to me though perhaps in him going modern he ended up the verses themselves sounded very very thin and not thin in the way that you'd i think it comes down to melody i just wasn't into the melody because that's what it takes you could yeah. have a very thin uh construction as it were with just basic instruments sometimes one maybe two instruments plus your voice and that's all you need as long as you have a powerful melody which is why I, I tout melody so much but this just didn't have it so once you like that the the thin nature to it kind of is, uh, is a gaping hole which is a fair assessment I mean I don't really like I said I don't think I saw the gaping holes as clearly as you did but it definitely did have that kind of thinness feel although again I did get engaged and we'll go now towards the middle end of the track there's an instrument that came in in this mix and what really made me appreciate the mix was this instrument that kind of stepped to the forefront and I couldn't identify what it was turns out the instrument is a it's not is it's probably just a synth but it sounds like to sound like a clavichord and so a clavichord it's a very tinny sort of staccato little thing and it's yeah. just this little flourish pretty cool <laughs> yes and uh and it, it definitely engaged me towards the end of the song and the end of the song is actually my favorite part of the song and one of my favorite endings on the record because this song like others had that guitar through line which a lot of the songs on this album have but what i really liked is he did something that not a lot of artists do these days but because he's playing in this thinner kind of you know stripped down you know, lo-fi sound, he ends the song with a guitar strum, but doesn't. there's no flourishing, there's no fancy ending or fade out, it's just at the end of the guitar strum, pulls the pick away and done. Yeah, I'm with you, I, I appreciate those kind of endings, you and, know, no need to really drag it out or, or do the classic ending, if your song has ended, just end it, it often carries more weight. And it did, because I thought that the end of the song had more, a lot more weight than it started with. Yeah, so yet again, we're in a sort of a split position about this song. We liked elements of it, we don't like other elements of it. I, it comes down to taste in the end, as all things do. But John's comment is starting to really hit home now, because whereas certain little elements might just strike me as, as blended with the rest. Because his mixing is so well, you almost don't notice it. Yeah. The mixing on that clavichord, on the banjo, on the banjo, on uh, on any of these other little inserts, it's so expertly done that you just sort of accept it as, okay, there's an instrument here. There's no reason you can't do that, but sometimes you really do want more. And I find that after, you know, three or so tracks of discussing uh, discussing tracks in this way. Look, ooh, I love that little section there. We're not talking about anything cohesive. And that's a problem to me. And uh, then we get into Unforgiven, which started beautifully for about 15 seconds and then went into almost Electronica. So I want to say to no, start... Not Electronica. Not Electronica. I, 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 I want to get this out here. First, he had the ambient drone. 
again, it's sort of strings again, similar to what you get in the beginning. It, but I was very intrigued by that by that drone. It was it's, gorgeous. It sounded yeah. very much like a orchestra preparing to play. I thought that, well, that's one way to put it. And yet, I also felt like there was no, there was distinct musicality within that, not just you know the tuning. Yeah. There was a there was a tension there that I didn't find anywhere else on this album. I thought theoretically you could have done a whole song off of that, and then we get something drastically different. It's sort of a sine wave piano hammering down. The reason yeah. I say that because you feel the piano timbre there. You feel the instrument is there, and yet it's phasing electronically, which is why you went in the direction of electronica. Yeah. It's because you feel it phasing in and out, almost otherworldly or, or computer-like. And yeah. yet that technique has been used for 30 years. It was modern 30 years ago. It's still it's still very cool. And I thought any number of things could have been done to that, whether it was retro or not, sort of a, a funk riff. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe even something like Paul Williams-oriented, like the kind of thing we got on the Daft Punk. We could have even got that, which would be very out of character for uh, Beck, but whatever. It could have been cool. There are any number of things he could have done with this, any yeah, number of things did. he could have done with the intro. And Neither did, were done. He did no. nothing. So the song was still in the vein of a more modern sounding track, but my biggest gripe with this track is up until this point, if there was any percussion at all in a song, it was very faint or very well mixed. It was to serve its purpose to help move the song and to push forward the other elements that were really standoutish. In this track, the drums took a complete forefront. They were, and they weren't even doing anything fancy, but they were louder, turned up, and mixed higher than they had been in other tracks. And this almost to the point see, of distraction. I, no, this, this makes is where I know. kind of disagree with that assessment, though. You think that the that the uh, that the drums were the cause, and the drums, no, of course they're not complex. They're so thin. They are exactly what I described. The semi-electronic uh, could have been funk riff there, which is just the piano sine wave combined with the drum that that falls down the same beat that the piano hammers on which is just this slight pitter-patter yeah maybe it's turned up a little louder but again that's that's part of the essence of what was probably the better part of the track for me i feel like the the backdrop in this situation ironically was more powerful than the content yes i'm also i'm on board with that uh once again i'm not really groove in emotionalizing i don't even know how to put it <laughs> there was nothing to know. groove to on this track no not no groove, i disagree not even the word the groove was it no that is what i was grooving to and then there was no substance behind it there's nothing i get to identify with in the track there's no none of beck's hooks to identify with maybe that's it like to a delve fork. into there's there's it, it was just a little bit light on the forefront and i'm i'm definitely agreeing with that once again i'm just not really his vocals are at this point just starting to become I think in the normal. End, I think it was the hear. fact that he oversold it. I think he oversold it with the intro. Yeah. Because of the fact that uh, maybe he ran the line the risky line of of uh walking down a path that people are kind of familiar with. Right. You know, there's there's songs that have great tracks that have been built off uh intros like this and and um and grooves like this so popular mindset perceives that maybe something like that could happen and yet it doesn't happen i I don't know i almost feel like i'm being a little harsh on this at the same time it i don't think you're being very little to say on the content because in terms contextually here 
that is the most that is the most unique thing about the track. Even if he was doing something like absolutely amazing, maybe it is that the drums and and the and uh, the piano that really does take you away from it. So maybe I'll maybe I'll go back to myself. Maybe you were right, Matt, in in perceiving that as the problem from a context perspective. It's the part I like best, but it's a problem in context. Yeah, I mean the big my honestly, truly, my biggest problem with the song is that the mix wasn't just as well and strong as it was in previous tracks. I felt the drums were too high or too loud because high means something else when we're talking about music. Mm. So the drums were too loud. I thought the piano was too low. I thought the vocals were too flat. And I thought that yeah. the synth Maybe. was just trying to match the vocals. So you have flat synth and flat vocals, drums that are turned too loud, and a piano that's turned too low. The See, only is- thing that stood out in the song that I actually enjoyed was near the end when the violins came in. Because I love violins, and they're rarely... I mean, it's really hard to screw up a good violin. And so that that was a little bit engaging, but it was too little too late. The song, how I just felt, he was so good mixing the last five tracks, even with stuff that were flat, with stuff that was a little thinner. They were still mixed well. This was the first time I felt the mix was a little off, and I just didn't enjoy it. Yeah, there's a couple more things to say about this. I think because uh, I don't think we're flushing this out well enough. There's the content, because we've done very little in the way of describing the content. All we've described is the backdrop. The content, you have these, especially uh, just say a moment around the second verse here, you get these swells. Again, great reverb, which is at other places in this album too, we get it here as well. And it, the first verse was a little bit darker, the second verse I feel like it took a more positive touch, which again contrasts with the darker element of the backdrop. So that's why maybe there is a little bit of divorcing between the content and the backdrop. Uh, I almost want to say that this is a similar problem we had back in um, Goldfrap, back at episode 64. But, it, because it, it had a very beautiful backdrop also. At the same time, it also had the beautiful voice to bank on. And here, you're sort of lacking that one particular hook. If, you're, if, it's, if your hook is not in the forefront and it's in the background, that's almost a problem. Yeah. It's odd. Very odd. Again. At the same time, there's cool sound effects. I still think more could be done with that drone. I wanted the drone to persist. I wanted it to advance. Well, that was... It almost had like an industrial edge, and then you have these, these sound effects where it sounds like metal dropping in a hallway. So there's a lot more to be said about this track. I don't want to be too narrow about it. Right. Well, the, It's my... just context. Well, well, yeah, and I mean, the context was also part of the problem. The fact that the vocals and the synth were so flat... It conveyed a haunting feel in parts, but then they didn't do anything with it. And as you said, it started out kind of haunting and creepy, and then got lighter, and then got haunting again. At that point, you're already taken out of the emotion, because it's flip-flopping. Flip-flopping. And flip-flopping is the worst thing you can do in a haunted track, because you're taken out of that moment. Haunted in one hand, and then positive in the other. One of those positive chord changes falls in the uh, somewhere unforgiven, right there on the given that that chord takes me completely away from the mood, which is a little safe for Beck, um, because positive is more of a static emotion. He's clearly done more with the, with the more complex emotions, yeah. you know, other than just uh, a happy chord. I know that's a weird thing to gripe on, but it's worth closing. Uh, actually, no, there's one more thing that's worth closing on, and this is something you'll appreciate because it was that little harp at the very very end. Yeah, you remember that little harp thing that came in for about. Oh, two to five seconds. Yeah, it was, was there. It was so gone. fleeting. So yet again, yet another example of a instrument fleeting that's brought instrument in randomly. That's, 
yeah. I, I really didn't want to believe that this was uh, the way he was going to use instruments, because it did not seem to be the case back in Morning. So it seems like this album is disappointing me at this stage. Um, I wouldn't say that the album is disappointing me. I'd just say this song is... But no, that's by, his opinion. He's allowed to express his opinion. I didn't say anything about his. I said it didn't disappoint Disappointed me. Disappointed me no. by contrast. Right, which is fair. However, track seven is where he takes unnerving and haunting to a better level, or a different level at least. I agree. I, I so, don't know. Okay, that one I'm going to refute. Wave ah, see. was not unnerving. It was not haunting. It was elegant and beautiful. Why point, can't it just point? Why can't I did it be not both? Feel, I didn't feel haunted, unnerved. I didn't feel any negative emotional connotation. Ready, in this ready. One. Cliche is gonna Even, happen. Cliche is gonna happen. Beauty's in the eye beholder. Oh. In this one, in this one specifically, this song was purely positive. And I know where the haunting, uh, especially in his vocal inflection, I know where the haunting is coming from. But I don't feel that. This song was to me. I. I this is all I wrote down. The sweet flow of emotional crescendos. This had one of the one of the most amazing flows uh, of a song I've heard in a very long time. It does exactly what it says in the title. It is breaking waves, and I love this song for it. Well, it's definitely the most cinematic song on the record. Oh yeah, hands down. It's got that epic feel, almost muse level epicness. It it really does convey that, and even in the vocals. Beck is mimicking a very, very theatrical, almost, singing style in this song. It and has I th- the whole epic soundtrack behind it, like a death scene or something. Yes. And that's where I got... And I think that's where I got the unnerving and off-putting. Maybe not haunted, but unnerving and off-putting. It, just, it, feel, it does feel like a very poignant scene. And a lot of poignant scenes in movies revolve around death and negative things. That's why I think you said it right to say that it can be both. It can yeah. be beautiful and it can be the other thing. Because, of course... Me interpreting this as a death scene, there's obviously a lot of tension here. So, of course, it's unnerving in a way. Um, unnerving in a way that is that is gorgeously uh, sort of epic. Again, it feels like it's from sort of some... It's cinematic. Yes. Which is odd, I guess, in the context of this album so far. But I kind of welcome it. Because it uh, at this point, it, it gives me something something bigger to latch on to. Something bigger than, larger than life. The other songs are very accessible since morning. This this was one that definitely did take a... I mean, I, I did that whole spiel at the beginning of it. I love this song. This is my favorite song. I do enjoy it more than morning because it just does something different for me. This is what I wanted for this whole album, Wave. Let's just look at the, the little bit of lyrics that are in this track here. I move away from this place in the form of a disturbance and enter into the world like some tiny distortion. By the way, the way he goes up to the higher register on that tiny distortion, very beautiful in its own way, uh, especially considering the, the dirge this song has going for it. Verse 2. And if I surrender and I don't fight this wave, I won't go under. I'll only get carried away. That's beautiful. Yeah. Simple. Mm-hmm. But, very but beautiful. Straightforward. Um, and uh, there's also... To talk about uh, vocal inflection, little little flutter on that, a little quiver on that, uh, get carried away, way yeah 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 yeah, kind of carries that out. So there's anything to be said about uh, about what he does with his voice here. So you know this even goes me back to that that gold frap. I think there's a much closer comparison here to gold frap than you than you let on because that was one of the things. Even though certain little things might lack in in music quality, you have that that beautiful voice to latch onto. In this case, it's it's Bex. 
um, the outro for this track. Mm-hmm. Literally just two words. Wave and isolation. Yeah. Now, that, that's where I think that proves Matt's point enough that it's unnerving. I did not Unless feel... you're a very disturbed person. I'm a little <laughs> well, bit. we know he is. I'm a little more than a little bit disturbed. But I like being isolation, unnerved, though. That's the, the way, idea. The way he says, he sings, isolation... Drags out the eye. It becomes nearly incomprehensible if you're not paying attention. It becomes... Well, he if he goes full instrument with his voice. If you're immersed in the music and, and the drone, then no, you might not catch it, those this two This is words. one of the best examples in all of the songs where his voice truly blends as another instrument in the song. And the way... And this is, this is what we talked of before. The way the music uh, adheres to his voice at yeah. times. This is the part where all I could see in my mind was... And not from a, a dangerous or scary or disturbed point of view, just dark, choppy sea, raining in the background, thunder and lightning, just a pure open sea, which in and of itself is is a little bit of a terrible beauty. But it is just beauty to me. All right. Well, as long That's as you're fair. flushing out the terrible side of the equation, then yes. Yeah. Because there's definite darkness here. Unnerved is a very specific kind of word because certain people would be unnerved and then certain people would be totally at ease in that particular environment right it it becomes uh, perception and perspective i think i think it was the real the real de-emphasis and even i mean we we said it before but the de-emphasis on the percussion here yeah that really yes kept it from very little if any yeah that that kept me from getting any sort of negative emotional connotation here yeah that's a that's a good observation lack of percussion is is very important because it does until now it's been just sort of the steady element sometimes circular sometimes uh Sometimes tribal, like, often very just steady, which is the way Beck usually uses percussion. But yeah. now, when it's absent, that's a very riveting moment. So, let's move on to Don't Let It Go, track eight. So this song, I mean, I don't really have a ton to say about, other than I thought it was very it was very sweet and idyllic romantic, almost, um... It had good guitar work, nothing super-duper fancy, but, I mean, Beck hasn't really done anything super-duper fancy on most of the record as far as the guitar work. A lot of it's been very steady and very moving. He's not a flashy guy, and I no. thank him for that. And actually, yes. no, there was some flash on this song. A little bit. That's the why I flash... said good That's why I said good guitar work. None of it was so mind-blowing that it's, it, it's going to change your life, but definitely some standout moments with the guitar work in this song. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was a little toned down and allowed you to focus on the lyrics, which I thought were very beautiful in this song. Yes, and it was, it was the the guitar work shown its its uh, best when he was using the same inflection in his vocals, and using different chords to punctuate those vocals, which did a an amazing job, a hell of a job of really just changing emotions without changing his voice, and that was one of the most curious things on this song was the doubling effect he used with his guitar. It's the best on the album of him trying to mesh an instrument to his voice. And it was, I, I, chord for chord, he really did a hell of a job of knowing what to play. And it was just, I loved it. Yeah, I had done about a 180 with this track because I came in sort of negative. Um, again, I do think I was I was starting to treat this, this album <laughs> and... Um, 
bring it in contrast with morning, which again, it's, it's always a mistake. Sometimes it's not though, especially when you put your most powerful track up at the front, and I still, at the end of the day, think that was easily the most powerful track. But, uh, so maybe I felt it was a kind of missing something, but at the same time, there was a lot of beauty to it. I, I, I agree with that, and um, I, I want to say that this is department store pop if the DJ has got excellent taste. You know, occasionally <laughs> you will actually be in a department store and you'll be like, yeah, all right, I could shop at this. This <laughs> is not in the negative sense, as I've previously used it. Well, Beck has been in a lot of department for, uh, store repertoires. I'm sure he has. Good reason, because it's very it's, it's very mellow, you know? It's, mellow, soothing, and enjoyable. It's where you want to be. It's like... Unobtrusive. Unobtrusive, exactly. You're welcome. Not trying to anger you when you're staring at the price of something. Just trying Which to... is going to anger you enough as it is. Exactly. Um, I, th I don't think there's much more to say really about this track other than it was engaging in its beauty and simplicity. There wasn't a lot to it, but we all got a little something out of it, and that's kind of all we were looking for. And in that sense, I think it did its job. Especially on the repeat of Don't Let It Go, Don't Let It Go, where yeah. that gets repeated over and over, it, it's, it's harmonized, again, higher. Yeah. Maybe I'm just a sucker for that. Of course, that's sort of a, a trademark, you know, oh, harmonize something higher. Yeah. That's going to get you going. But um, His voice the, way it, the way it works, it works, it works, exactly. And, and the way it's, the, the particular line chosen also, don't let it go. You know, you you don't want to let it go. <laughs> and, pre and pretty much the obvious through line in a lot of this record so far, too, as we get towards the second half to end of it is his his voice is beautiful he has a great singing voice yeah. i've heard it I, there's a quote and steve can correct me on this but Which um, <clears throat> uh i read I it in a, I read in a book and it was about the, this book actually is about a bard uh not shakespeare but book about a bard a book about a bard book about a bard that's the main character and he said that fingers fail eyes grow dim but a well-kept voice is like wine it only improves in age and I really feel like Beck may be on top of his game, and if not a little bit better. He's doing some very interesting things. It might be just his choice of working with the instruments, but his voice really, I don't think I've heard it better. Yeah, I would agree. But you wanted me to correct him, though, right? Is that, well, do is you that, know the quote? Is that wrong? No, he doesn't know the quote. I know no, I don't know the then quote. I know, but I, no, I was, going no, correct you. I was going to correct you on different grounds that, that no, voices do do fall out with age. Occasionally people lose their voices entirely, so no, that can't be true. Okay. Well, I'm... Wah, wah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a very beautiful quote, and yes, clearly it is true for many people. It is true for Beck. Then again, there is a lot of reverb behind all this, and we kind of ran into that problem back in the McCartney uh, soundtrack, uh, excuse me, McCartney album, new, uh, the first we did it this year, episode 76, heavy reverb, heavy, bleh, heavy reverb on almost every single track, perhaps because the man is aged and there is a lot to be had there by thickening out his voice in a way he can't do naturally. But I never felt... I don't believe that's true with Beck. Yeah. I'm just saying that's always a little... You know, you can fake it in these days with production. You always yes, can. Yes, but I don't believe that that's the case here. I believe that this is him wanting to do fun and interesting things with his voice. That's the big distinction, is yeah. that it's artistic. How are you going to use that reverb? Yeah. It, in in, in, in uh, McCartney's album New, there was no re reason for it. There yeah. was almost no reason for it. I, was, I would prefer to have heard a crisp voice based on uh, the song style of many tracks in that album yeah. here it, it blends perfectly I said that as early as morning the way yeah. the guitar blends with that style of reverb on his precise inflections his resonance his natural resonance it's perfect 
match made in heaven. Maybe he discovered that when he was young, and that's why he became a musician. It could be. Uh, undoubtedly. Uh, moving undoubtedly. on to track nine. Same thing. We have Blackbird Chain. So, this is another song where he tends to lean more towards something of the past. Um, this song has a very distinct 60s kind of rock and roll feel. And it's just one of those things that a lot of times when you hear music, you hear a song, and you swear you recognize the guitar riff, but you're not sure where from. This this was Southern. Yeah, and it, it was very Southern rock. But there was a, a guitar riff in the very beginning that almost sounded Beatles-like, though we couldn't place the song to save our lives. However, it did, was very reminiscent of that 60s rock and roll sound. Um, minor twinges of medieval almost sounding later. But it really um, comes together as a fairly good song. I mean, the lyrics didn't stand out that much to me in this one. But no. But but I, what <laughs> I'm gonna be refuting that one. What this was some of the best lyrics on the album. Really? Yes. They didn't really stand out to me at all. A keepsake in a dresser drawer from who knows where, the symbol of your ex seducers and a full length mirror. Interesting. He's going full poetry on this one. Rock bottom of a hallowed ground, restake your claim. I just love. It, this this is another case where inflection and lyrics are really meshing up here. I recall that in particular, the moment where he uh, where he recites, restake your claim. There was a slight pause there between those two lines, and oh, that was so that was so needed at that moment yeah. because he again, did. some of his some of his lyrics in other tracks are a little bit clumped together, they're, yeah. or, or they're very very short because because the melodies can sometimes be very short and concise. Uh, the lyrics end up following suit because that's all they could do but in this particular case he sort of spaced it out very well in an innovative way problem with that though is the song itself is musically fluffy and i think that might be why i didn't notice the lyrics maybe i was so focused on the fluffiness of the song yeah i was distracted yeah it was it fluffy is like the word it you got to cut through it you got to get it out of the way to really appreciate what he's singing and how he's singing it because the song itself, while it had some really, really pretty parts, was just a little bit too old school. I think so, uh, one of the things that really made this track suffer, and many other tracks on this album, I think, suffering, the hooks are just not strong enough later no. here in the album. I think um, it probably was still the strongest part of this song uh, when he repeats, I'll never, 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 never refuse you. That was a pretty sweet moment, I yeah. do have to say. But even so, it just can't... I'm not. This time, I'm not. I'm going to withhold from comparing it to Morning. I just think that in comparison to maybe even other uh, of Beck's tracks, or... You know, it's, it, just it, other it, songs It can work on a level, but not too much beyond that. It's, it's very... It's, it's safe music. I'm going to stick in the same exact uh, boat here with the with the good taste department store pop. In other words, I'm not dissing this at all. I would listen to this as background music in a heartbeat. It's tough for me to be engaged. See, and this is where I want to fight it a little bit. Not this song, the last song. You said that about the last song, and I disagree if you're going to say it about this song, too. I definitely see this, this song fitting that formula. But to me, the last song was way more engaging than this one, then. Because I did enjoy Don't Let It Go more than this track. I okay, disagree with both no. of you. You could go back and forth on either one. Although I do have one more thing to say about this. Uh, the, 
it did feel a little bit more old-fashioned this time, and that was something the previous track did not have going for it. So at least then with Don't Let It Go, I'll give you that. Yeah. Um, it was almost in the same vein, but still with that modern Beck edge. Just yeah. everything I said about in the in the beginning. Folk with a uh, with a twang of modernism. The ever-modernizing folk, you know, yeah. where it stays relevant through its ability to adapt. And then here in Blackbird Chain, it, it's like he just broke that barrier. The thing I said in the very beginning, that there was a distinct barrier there with what Beck introduced and what had previously existed, where many people probably would have touted Simon and Garfunkel or Emerson, Lake, and Palmer as, like, the gods of the 60s, 70s folk era, which, yeah. believe me, everything they did was, I mean, much of what they did was stellar. It's incredibly influential, clearly, but it is of that time. It, it almost doesn't carry the, uh, the timeless... Well, it, it's timeless in and of itself... But it's it's tricky if you're gonna uh, sort of emulate those those little motifs because the style just screams the era. So here he is he's crossing it he's crossing it back again he's sort of almost just hanging up his natural Beck self and just going back in time a little bit not to any sincerely negative end but I really heard Emerson Lake and Palmer in this yeah. track. And unfortunately, and in closing on this song, it's it's kind of a problem that becomes a consistent problem through the end of the album. But barring the next track, which is the more or less instrumental interlude, the rest of the album has this problem. Oh, I have just one more thing to say about Blackbird Chain. Okay. Little brief string flourishes at the end, which is probably a very odd choice. Yes, oh, I put that it builds at the end. It, it has builds, those swells. Well, it builds into sort of this weird waltz thing. Yeah. It's like these brief two measures or so of this one, two, three, one, two, three, which it did again. This time, it's not so much he's choosing an instrument that doesn't fit, but he's choosing a a, a, a motif that doesn't fit, which, yeah. how can you really call it a motif then? <laughs> because it's stated as if it were some kind of callback. And yeah. What is it a callback to? Yeah, nothing. nothing. It's um, cool, but I think it was more everything. meant to lead into the next track. I feel like everything else. we're going through is like, cool, great, would listen to it, but, yeah, you know, there's always a but. Blank. Um, and so, track 10 is Phase, the other half of the title track. We had Morning at the beginning, now we have Phase, which is the title of the record. A phase is a... And I know John was a little harsh on this the track. I thought it was very beautiful. I very much enjoyed it. It was an interlude. It was a little over a minute. It swelled. But what Steve pointed out that really made me appreciate it more on a second listen is that Phase has a similar... What was it? It was similar progression. It is almost the exact same chord progression that you find in Morning. Which links the songs together further. Which is an interesting concept. And I know it's not anything so mind-blowing. But it's just an interesting idea to break the the title track into two separate tracks. But still have them linked in sound. I think it's interesting and I kind of like it. I think it serves morning its purpose. Morning phase, morning, and, and phase. And I think it serves its purpose as a instrumental interlude. Um, I know John very much felt it did nothing, and I yeah. and I very much wow. disagree. I f I thought it was beautiful. It, it didn't do nothing. It it wasn't the fact of what it is and what it does. It's the fact that what is around it is not connected to it. That's I, why I, I feel will like agree it did you nothing. on that note. I will but, agree but too. But the thing is, in in itself, it is a nice idea. Yeah. Yeah. What it tried to do. Yeah. And I do think that again, if you. If you just sort of reorganized or did something maybe a little more intriguing with the inner parts of this record, this could have very well been a, a tied-together record. Yeah. Because Morning, to me, is just such a grandiose track yeah. that highlights such an uh, 
undefinable emotion, and nothing else seems to live up to it. It, it He oversold it big time yeah. with that, unfortunately. But, hell, I would rip off that track and, you know, I'll, I'll use your quote. I'll throw it on a playlist any day, you know, yeah. because it, uh, it, it really... It's I'll so, get to, I'll get to that so in my pretty. wrap up because yeah. it's so gonna be end up being a huge part of my. Well, wrap let's up. move on past phase because it's it's something that we've heard. You, if you've heard the record along and listening along with us, you you know the sound. It's similar yeah. to what came earlier. The one thing you'll also notice is that it's a lot slower than uh, even though it's the same chord progression, a lot slower than morning, more pronounced. Yes, as if it's sort of taking that emotion and and emphasizing it in a way. Yeah, like whenever you introduce an orchestra, you know here's. Here's a hundred musicians to really, really hammer this home. It's yeah. almost like that's what he's doing. Yeah. So we get to track 11, which is called Turn Away. So from the moment the song starts, it's very easy to identify. He's still jumping backwards in time. This song is very similar to a sound of Simon and Garfunkel, uh, yeah, yeah. which I, you had I mentioned noted earlier. Emerson, Lake and Palmer in, in, in the earlier track, and now here we get uh, Some Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. Garfunkel. I mean, it's sweet and it's pretty, but at this point it's like... I don't dislike it because it's not <laughs> bad, but it's just we've said that so many We're times already. Circles. Yeah, it's just this is... at this point in the record, it's like we get it. You want to do, you want to pay homage to your past and your influences, but you're much more engaging when you're original instead of it may emulating. Very well, the past. I mean, this is all speculation. It may very yeah. well have been subconscious, and that this has always been part of his influences. But it just seemed that in his earlier work, there was that that consciousness of the of the present day yeah that that always gave him this this unique twang so yeah i kind of interpret this album in a in certain moments as a throwback yeah just just, just certain moments really not like a retro album by no. any stretch what? but um you you question where those big shifts in style fit yeah this song cemented one big fact and this is something that i believe is probably present throughout most of beck's career he writes a song with a guitar. That is really very obvious because of the nature of how a guitar is used in his music. He, he, but he writes it with just a guitar at times. And then he puts in the other instruments on top of what can almost be a finished project, a product to begin with. This is where we have a lot of the, the, the beat work just changing up a little bit or the layering starting to come apart in some of the later songs and I really felt in Turn Away with uh, the the heavier beat work he's doing here or for this album really heavy beat work um, I just could not get behind it that was the main problem I had with this not even the southern style not even the more throwback style but it was just I felt like the layering was just not there this was another track where the snuff. mixing was just not up to snuff. Not even not up to snuff, just not there. Hmm. I mean, it was a very thin track. It was very much a... Not layered, piled. It felt piled. Yeah, I didn't note that so much, but... No, me yeah. neither. I mean, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. I think the biggest problem with this track is that it's just... It's thin. Here's the, here's the whole thing. It's thin like... If Blackbird, Blackbird was a little thin and fluffy. It's got some interesting string accompaniments, but then again, this album has no shortage of that at this yeah, point. They're no. always beautiful when you hear them, but, you know, give me something else. Yeah, exactly. Give me something this, else. this, Turn Away, any, and especially Country Down, the next track, which is a full-fledged, obvious country song. country song. Not Southern rock, not folk country. Yeah. I feel like the whole album could have been done as a pure 
acoustic album. Because, especially towards this end, I feel like that's how everything was written. Yeah. Yeah, you no, can especially it became see that. more true as this went on. Country down. There's definitely no uh, subconscious nature here. Yeah. This was intentionally a country, a country track. song. Um, and it's not just the instrumentation. It's not just the way he plays. It's also the way he sings. Which he is sings very in that odd. Very and that's yeah. really the, that's the deal sealer there. Because this is Beck has always had a very unique style of singing. It's it's easy to tell when he's changing it up for a specific purpose. I do think he pulled it off fairly effortlessly. He, he does. Like, I could have mistaken him for a country singer. But that's the problem. And I just, like, it's the why. Yeah, that's the biggest problem. Because he can. Well, all right, but... <laughs> it, well, yeah. The thing yeah. that sold me on most of this record, even with the songs that I was less sold on, like Blackbird Chain and Turn Away, is at least he's still singing in a very Beck style. It's Beck. Which, which was engaging. But by the time we get to Country Down, I'm just... I'm now not getting the sound I want and the mix I want. And on top of that, I'm also not getting his voice the way I want it. That's the thing. In the earlier case, uh, back when I thought he was um, almost emulating Emerson Lake Palmer, and then yet again, Simon Garfunkel, I, I withheld emulation because yeah. it was so subtle. Yeah. Um, but this, there's no way. This, this is, is clearly emulation. Yeah, he yeah. went from, he went from Crosby, got, Stills, Nash to Garth Brooks in this case. It's got all the, and it's, it's got all the tropes. Yeah, it's know. just... This is a song that, I mean, there's not much to talk about other than it sounds like a country song. It's very different from the rest of the record. It almost feels out of place. And it also really takes me away from the thing I said, a really high uh, compliment I said in the beginning, that it, it came off genuine, real, you yeah. know? I, it, I really can kind of taken away from that at this point. Yeah. And it kind of, and the, the real unfortunate part is that Country Down not only being not great on its own, also numbs and I feel lessens the last track. That said, mm. track 13, Waking Light, is a great conclusion track. I think it's a great way to sum up the record. The problem is the record it's summing up has holes, huge gaping holes. I want to challenge that a little bit. And I think Waking Light is a great conclusionary song because it was written as a conclusionary track. The track itself, I'm just not there with it. I mean, I can see that. At this point, also, we're kind of fatigued with, with the album. But I still think that it holds up with some of the lesser tracks. It's not Another Morning by any means, but it's at least in the vein of Morning. It's trying to go back to that sound. But at this point, we've gotten three songs, not counting Phase because it's so short. We've gotten three songs in a row that are just so retro no, I, that I, Waking Light just lost its impact a bit. I agree with you. I think um, at this point, it begs a lot of the listener to yeah. expect some kind of grand wrap-up as uh, after what we've had for the last few tracks. And again, there's nothing bad on this album, no. in my opinion, at all. No. There's, nothing, there's nothing even subpar. Mediocre might come in a few times but even so it's still it, it's it's a question of where it fits these days you yeah. know it fit really really well back in the uh back in the 90s and even then i don't think this album necessarily would have i feel like it would have even been a little safe for the 90s so yeah i would say especially the latter half i would yeah, definitely agree definitely um, um that that said though i mean waking light still does 
still feel like a, a good wrap-up track. It's just we're we're so there's it's so asking, much. It's asking a lot, a lot of, of the listener. track itself to wrap up what was kind of falling apart towards the end of the yeah, album. Yeah, you said it right with fatigue, yeah. and also it's it's just the idea that um, there is a little bit of a sameness here um, yeah. in in tone throughout that. Sometimes it's just in Beck's natural resonance, as beautiful as it is sometimes. Uh, I feel like his lo-fi sound is, is is both the blessing and the curse because it it conceals variety. Yeah. So. And with that, I'll start the wrap-up. I, ha- I had the same sort of issue, as was mentioned a few times, as, as what I had with Goldfrap. It sounded samey. And it's not because... It is actual the same music being played over and over again. It's in this case, it's more of you, you're getting strings, you're getting piano, you're getting uh, a, a lot of acoustic instruments being played the same sort of chord work, but in just different styles. You're getting some s- southern, some country, but it, the sounds that they're actually making while tempos are changing, while everything actually is changing just are very much the same, you know, candids. And that actually does make give you some fatigue in listening to this album. It does bring it down a little bit because you're it, it, if you're not paying attention, you're going to be hearing a lot of the same. But that's really, that's very skin deep on this album. As was said, there's no bad tracks. There's good. Everything is really good. It starts great. But this track, this album really does have its high point in the beginning. There are, there was expectations after morning that it did not quite exceed. Because morning set up some great, great ideas. Just a beautiful, beautiful track. Not my favorite, but it did do something. It took my expectations and it exceeded them. And I thought every track after that would do the same. Exceed my expectations. Album doesn't do that. It meets them. It's what I would expect from Beck. A very thoughtful, intelligent album, but not that, that life-changing, you know, that great indie or alt or progenitor type of a feel to it. And to be to be honest, and after Wave, it's really, it just hits all good. It's all average folk. Average Southern. There's There's nothing... That really is standout-ish. It's a 3-5. It's above the rest and it has high points, but it's nowhere near 4 territory here. It's it's nowhere being a great album. Really? I'm surprised you're rating it lower than Steve Martin's album from last week. Steve Martin had a whole different level to it, and that was the theme work. That's the other thing. I don't feel any really cohesive arc or theme other than the styles being played and we said before there's two three styles being played here that's fair that's that's another part that's that's i just wasn't expecting it not really criticism i just wasn't expecting it it. steve martin had that extra oomph Mm -hmm. of the underdog here it's just that active passivity that beck does gotcha so yeah three five all right well, I should um, explain some context here under the circumstances of which I listened to this album for the very first time. My cat died this weekend. I had a cat for a really, really long time. 
I'm not gonna sit here and mourn the cat. Although I really want to sit here and mourn the cat. I love that cat. Anyway, it was the night after she died. And here I am in a catless household for the first time in many, 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 many years. And I, it's kind of getting to me a little bit. Anyway, I thought that this would be appropriate time to start listening to Beck's album. And went through the intro. We already established what the intro serves as a perfect intro to morning. And then morning was that moment where I did what I hadn't, I hadn't really done in, in, in many years, despite all the... All the al all the albums that we've reviewed here, all those emotional gut wrenching tracks, even some of them weren't always the the music for an appropriate time, especially time like death, which is really tricky one to to unpack. And yet this one fit perfectly. Again, I know this is purely subjective and and incredibly contextual considering uh, the circumstances. But I think there's definitely something to be said for that, because it wasn't just the circumstances, it's, it's written there within the chords themselves, those four simple chords of mourning, and then the context surrounding it. The fact that everything just blends together to fit a tranquil need for just about any personal loss or personal requirement to unwind, to reflect on life, to do whatever you need to do, because we all have those moments where music really ha carries its uh, most powerful weight and can actually pull you out of certain uh, jams. Anyway, Morning is that track. For that reason, despite my little gripe about the bridge, which is silly because I think the verses could have carried the track in of, in of themselves, it's a five-star track easily because of its power. But in that same exact session, I, I, I continued listening. I couldn't finish it. I couldn't finish it. Not that every track needed to be mourning, and of course that's a tall order, but there's this, this is uh, track placement here. We rate albums. We rate albums, and I don't think we really take too kindly to those compilation things. Um, not always. I think there was more of a compilation element to, to last week's album, uh, uh, Steve Martin's album. D Despite what John says about the theme, the theme, I think, was scant by comparison. Well, you could apply a theme to this album if you wanted to, and that would be that tranquil side. It, It's scant, but it's track placement that I think is more important here than theme. I think, if anything, to think about this album another way, Morning could have been a great closer. It could have been a great climax. To make it the first track and then follow it up with tracks that just sort of dance around the subject, and I'm not even sure what subjects are, are being broached in certain moments. It's a really, really tricky thing. This is not going to hurt my rating that much, but I'm basically describing this as a track, I mean, excuse me, as an, as an album with one epic, and then, by contrast, filler. That's unfortunate. It's really unfortunate. If anything, had, had Morning not been there, this would have been a very average album, uh, the fact that Morning is there makes it still an average album, and that's just such a shame for the for uh, for Morning. Does sound like you have a strong contender though for Song of the Year this year? It's 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 strong. There's still uh, oh yeah, the year's just begun, so yeah. who knows? Who knows? Yeah, it's um this gut wrenchingly gorgeous song. <laughs> but I'm here to rate the album, so <laughs> and you threw me off. In either case, it comes back to. Uh, just because we were on the topic of last week's album, uh, uh, Steve Martin's, um, I, I do think there's some give and takes with it. 
I think oh. it's about it's about equal in terms of theme. I think uh, it's less unified than that album because at least you can define that as a bluegrass album. Here it's less unified because it's a little bit all over the place. Other people might mark it as more experimental for that reason, but they're not experimental moments. They're not Beck pushing his own boundaries. They're Beck revisiting existing things. That to me is a little bit of a loss. Uh, still, I think it's more intricate than last week's album. Right. Anyway, this is not about this album versus last week, but uh, just as as a framework for, for rating, I think it all ends up with all the pluses and minuses, it ends up equal. Three, seven, five. I'm going to give it a little more credit because it really is in line with my tastes. I could zone out to this album in its entirety, even if I am still longing for the the greatness that was morning. Okay. That makes sense in context. Yeah. Um, all about context, man. All about context. Well, it is, actually. And that's where a lot of my rating lies. I mean, the thing is, is when it comes down to it, I enjoyed this album more than I enjoyed last week's. And I liked last week's. I, you're I mean, doing I, it to your compare. Well, <laughs> but I, we had it last week. So well, also, something that you guys haven't mentioned is last week's album had Edie Brickell. And Edie Brickell was, I think, the glue that really held John's theme together. Because a lot of those songs she sang from a voice that was very felt very personal. Oh, of course. When we just said Steve Martin, we were just sort of uh, putting the big name on the front of it. We shouldn't do that, but in yeah. a way, yes. But that's what I'm saying is that that theme, I think, really solidified the theme last week. The theme is very thin here. Even if John pulled one of his metaphors out of his rear end. I don't think they would they would really hold up with this record. Wait, injection, can you do it? No, it doesn't give me enough lyrics to work with. It's strange because it's all melody-oriented. Yeah. And even the melodies leave a little to be desired in certain moments. It's a shame. It's a great, great, great framework with so much potential. Yeah. The, the string arrangements, just, again, not to interrupt your, your uh, final review here, but I do want to mention that um, by many other standards or reviews, this album did phenomenally well because yeah. uh, many other artists deem the signifying factor here to be those strings. And that's the big separator. Something that was not prevalent in, yeah. in previous uh, work of Beck. But yet, the strings, they're beautiful. Sometimes they don't have, they don't hit those climaxes either. Yeah. You know? They could. There <laughs> were violin moments that were completely out of place on this record. Or just kind of fleeting in there. And we've scolded so many other pop artists yeah. for using fleeting instruments that are not part of the whole run of the song almost like it's used in the same way that reverb can be used sometimes yeah i think the reverb here was more powerful than the strings i agree um i think that his his singing not necessarily what he sang but his singing and his vocals were one of the most powerful parts of this record um but in in line with what steve said though i i did enjoy this record more than last week's and that's what puts me in a complicated bind because I don't know that there's that level of quality that 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 Edie Brickell and Steve Martin brought. I mean, that album I rated a four. I thought it was it was not the end all be all of bluegrass, but I thought it was in the right direction of going somewhere interesting, especially considering the skill that Steve Martin displayed. Whereas Beck's vocals here in this album, how he layered himself, how he matched the instruments was mind-blowing to me. Um, I really did enjoy it in moments. There were moments where it really grabbed me. Um, but there are so many okay moments. There are no bad moments, like John said. It's it's all okay or great. 
but but I'm also not as hard on it as Steve is. I agree that Morning is hands down one of the best constructed tracks on the record, even if it's not my favorite. However, I feel Wave comes close. I feel the final track comes close, even though we were fatigued at that point. I still feel in style, in theme, and in feel it gets close. Um, and of course the interlude gets close as well, considering it's almost the same as Morning. Um, I feel like there's a lot more redeeming moments in this. I think I like this personally more taste-wise, but just quality rise, I just can't rate it as high as Steve Martin's record. I feel like the banjo, the skill of the banjo playing and the the uh, the quality of Edie Bacall's voice just still keeps it a little higher. So this one, this one is a, and I'm going to annoy the crap out of John. This is a three point nine. I That's like not it. Annoying. I, I I like it a lot. We I, accept that you're all on board and that you've all followed suit with my decibels. I, we accept I, that. I like it a lot, and and we are comparing a lot this week. But I felt like you know last week's album was a really very much a not polarizing album, but a very defining album in in, in really solidifying our how we feel and rate. And and this album, I felt. There was more emotion, but it fell behind in other places. And it's it could have been a four. If he had done less retro and done more modern, or just more different, or more interesting, or more engaging, or more it, could, it could have been a four. But it falls short. But not that short. It's not a it's three seven five. It's a three point nine for me. I, I I like it a lot and I'm gonna listen to it, but it just it just didn't make it's that on mark. On the cusp. On the cusp. I I was so close to the four point nine in the beginning. The four three point nine. A uh, three point nine. Excuse me. Wow. <laughs> let's, uh, let's Almost as good as the heist. Keep away from that. <laughs> Almost got sticks. Not quite got sticks. And then, <laughs> um, no, this is uh, oh, I hate it because morning is just so goddamn beautiful. But it's an album I'm rating. Yeah. Album I'm. You're rating, rating an I album. Have, not I have song? to do that at the end. Um, I was doing gonna do the three point nine at the end, but three point seven five I think is fair considering the rest of the record. Um, and overall, though, it's definitely worth hearing. If you like Beck, if you like 90s music, if you like any of those soundtracks we mentioned, go out and listen to this record. If you like acoustic, because it's not all acoustic, but if you like acoustic, this does a hell of a job of doing that. Yeah, it's definitely worth giving a listen. Definitely check this out. It gets right in the middle of a listen-to-it rating. Um, Ah, hell, (laughs) 3.8. Really? Yeah. All right. I guess yeah. I'm going to have to go down because you're going up. Is you don't have it? to do anything. anything. Okay. So 3.8, 3.5, and 3.9. Um, I want to move in briefly, but not too briefly, on a brief subject. Both because they tend to be brief. Ah, He's insinuating things. Yeah. I want to talk about... He's wearing briefs. That's what he's insinuating. No, it's tr- totally true. I'm not actually wearing pants right now. You don't know. Um... They have a very odd image of this podcast at the moment. <laughs> yes. Why are uh, boxers? Naked cast. Um, I want to talk about movie trailers. And what brought this on was, I think it was two weeks ago or three weeks ago on Jimmy Kimmel, they debuted the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy. Which, which is hysterical. Which is the new Marvel movie coming out in <sighs> the summer. And um, th- look, this is what inspired my idea for our topic. You like the topic, hush up. Describe it first. Describe uh, describe the trailer. Deep so, inside of me. So, the trailer for Guardians of the Galaxy I liked 
and it stood out to me mostly because I was getting a little bit of the fatigue Steve talks about a lot with pop culture and comic book movies. A lot of them take themselves very seriously. Even Avengers did. Even though the movie itself didn't, the trailers did. Hmm. Guardians of the Galaxy doesn't take itself quite so seriously. The trailer starts with Star-Lord. No one knows who he is. He's frustrated. It then cuts to a jail scene where all the Guardians of the Galaxy are being arrested and they're reading the rap sheet and talking about them. It's like, what is that? It's Groot. But the thing, but the thing about the trailer that really gets me is there's a, a, a layer of humor which is great for the characters and great for the trailer, but also musically. It features the song... Um, Hooked on a Feeling. Hooked on a Feeling. Which is so bizarre to have in a comic book movie trailer. But it, it, it it's one of those things that takes the trailer in a different direction. It's obviously not going to be on the movie soundtrack. But it really engages you and gets you to laugh. Because it's assuming that, you know, all of these characters are hooked on a feeling with each other. That they're very close and caring. and That's clearly not the case when you look at the rogues gallery. And um, it also does a great job insinuating the ridiculousness of hooked on the feeling with the ooga chaga, ooga, ooga, ooga chaga. And the kind of, it's old school and then they fuse it with a nice balance of the newer, uh, a, a, a re-splicing, a remixing of some synth work on top of that and change up so the whole got, song. So anyway, long story short or long story long at this point. This got me thinking about music and trailers because there are a lot of trailers I've seen over the years where the music featured in the trailer is actually not featured anywhere in the movie. Well, and let me interject just to uh, ha- have this week's session of why Steve sighed and explain the, the little problem. Just based on, on, uh, on the trailer you described just now, for me, it's not so much a, a point of, of brilliance it's maybe good from a marketing perspective, but it strikes me as something that's a little bit obvious, especially for uh, the comic book that you're describing. I mean, when you transfer that, there's something inherently comedic, I feel, about the cast. You'll know that as soon as you see the trailer. Because, I mean, for people that really aren't into the comic book, of course they see that as, all right, well, here's a, a fox. They, of course, that line, the um, my bodyguard slash houseplant kind of ridiculous characters, whatnot, it's difficult almost to interpret them as, uh, as seriously as perhaps many of the other comic book, um, comic book heroes in general. So when you portray them in films, well, you can go, you can do serious because serious does tend to move people quite a bit, lets them see their childhood heroes as something very real. But in this case, I feel like that's almost impossible to do especially even if there is you know seriousness in the comic book i'm sure there is either way that's something you can be seen once you're entrenched within the comic books themselves but outside of that on screen it's a really really tricky thing to portray as a hundred percent serious can't do it can't do it not for the the everyday audience in other words there's gonna need to be comedy so it strikes me as more of an obvious choice invoking a track like hooked on a feeling and something so silly because it's got to be silly. I get that. But, I mean, the reason I really brought it up was just because that trailer to me was very memorable because of the comedy and the music. And I was focusing more on the music. The fact that they used Hooked on a Feeling very much grabbed my attention because it's an older song and it's a fairly modern, futuristic even movie. So it was comical to me. Actually... And that's what and, and I felt like I was grabbed because of the music. But the, the details are... Neither here nor there. It's any number of songs you can choose, so it's a little weak for me, maybe. 
You want one of the one of my favorite bad movies, and it's not a, a, a bad bad movie. It's a good bad movie. But one of my favorite bad movies was Last Action Hero, which was a that movie. was every fifteen year old boy's favorite bad movie at because, that age. Because uh, if nobody, if you haven't seen it, it's Schwarzenegger playing an actor playing Schwarzenegger roles. So it's kind of it's kind of meta-y already, but the the trailer for it is hysterical, because it's a trailer of a trailer of a movie. So we're already going in, again meta-y. We're going Inception on this thing, and it plays every stereotypical '90s even '80s soundtrack in the trailer. You got your Wagner, you got your classical, and then you got you know your. Beverly Hills Cop, ding, ding, kind of a funky beat work going on there. You got explosions and the music that goes to explosions. It is the perfect example of generic music in trailers because it uses every single one it can find. Every single staple. There's an exa- There's a there's a list here, and you can actually find this list on a, a simple Wikipedia article called Trailer Music, which is a pretty has a pretty good rundown, uh, just for the layman of the kind of the kinds of of sources where your trailer music will often come from. And those sources, uh, amongst other things, first could have trailers that have music from other campaigns. In other words, from other movies where their trailer music was a big big hit. And then, well, if it was big hit then, maybe it'll be a big hit again, because people don't remember trailers as much as they remember the film. And a great example is the alien Prometheus, almost blatant ripping off of... I mean, with this... Of course, that makes more sense, because it's ripped Ridley really Scott in te- sort of attempting to do a makeshift prequel. But it uses the same exact... Wine. Yeah, the, the same the, exact, but not line. even not even the just the wine. The the shot of the trailer is stressing scene, stressing scene, cut to stressing scene, stressing scene with that trailer playing. Like right. it was shot and sa- and soundtrack did it the same, the same, both, and they were almost shot for shot exactly the exactly. same. Exactly, there's more of a reason for that. Of course, I was not that big a fan of the film, None and of us I don't were. think it really uh, it really served as a even halfway decent follow-up or, or prequel to, nope. to Alien, but that's besides the point because at least there was precedent there yeah. in what he was going for. Um, but sometimes you see it in completely different things. It's just sound library stuff at that point that any uh, any uh, marketer, good marketer or bad, can pull from. Uh, there's some examples listed um, that is either Aliens or... or Edwards or come see the paradise is one here that the music for that was used 27 times in in 27 other films where they used that music for uh for the trailer which is pretty insane when you think about it yeah you just have this copycat culture because of course it's not it's not the art people it's not the people behind the film it's not the director or, or even the composers making these choices it's it's the marketers because that's really what trailers do so it's a whole separate department that's just in the job of selling the film and they'll do what they know at that right. point well, it's, not, so it's it's rarely innovative it's often safe 
Well, yeah, and you also keep in mind that these, that how however many movies come out every year, the idea that that number's so high isn't that hard to believe because of how many movies come out per year, let alone per decade or per whatever. You said you noted, uh, John, that the music from Dragonheart was almost the same as the Hercules theme. No, no, no Stargate. Not, it was the SG One. It's Stargate Atlantis. I'm pretty sure it was the same opening credits theme as as uh, Dragonheart, which honestly, until we watched it recently, I had no idea it was that ridiculously the same. Yeah, it's um. It's pretty insane, the amount of copycatting that goes on here. But then, of course, there's also stuff that you almost want to give a pass to because of the timelessness of certain music, which brings uh, us to another thing here, classical music. It, things that everybody knows. For instance, Mozart's Requiem or Beethoven's Ninth, these really, or Ride of the Valkyries, any of these things could be and used. Not just used to promote Mozart or Beethoven or that epicness that everybody seems to associate with classical but ironically as well Rise of the Valkyries has been used ironically to depict something as epic that yeah. obviously isn't all the time yeah. oh yeah definitely. constantly all that's a time. big comedy that's movie that's its job that's it. That's its job in in the movie, movie industry at this point uh, it's, well it's 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 cool how comedy has taken that because the original work was meant to be so well you think right the valkyries i mean it, it's so grand you're just overpowered so then yeah to use it ironically is always pretty pointed i mean you're overpowered by by nothing by the like first, the first screensaver was the flying toasters with the right of valkyries in the background <laughs> that was the first screensaver that's pretty awesome windows 3.1 that that still makes me giggle just to think about it but yeah. i remember those flying toasters. it's kind of sad but yeah. at the same time we do get some Interesting uses of classical music. I uh, what's what's the one with the cannons? I always forget the one with the cannons. A cannon D major. Thank you. What? I just forget the actual name of it. <laughs> what? Cannon is D that a major. joke you were just making? No. No. What is cannon D major? What is it? What is the name of it? <laughs> I need to explain why that's absolutely hilarious because okay. a cannon is actually a type of musical composition. It's uh. not. It does not have anything to do with the fact that it has cannons cannons in it. Um. The thing I think you're thinking of, John, is uh, 1812 Overture. That's it. Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. That one is used quite often. Um, v for Vendetta actually had it in its trailer, if I'm not mistaken. No, it was in the actual movie. When he blows up the government building, that's playing over all the loudspeakers. Okay. It's in the movie, okay. it, movie proper. Uh, but I do remember it from plenty of commercials and movies and television no, yeah, shows absolutely. and all over the place. I well, just remember that. In it's it. a great way to punctuate scene work. Yeah, because it's funny because the actual, the original work had it in the sheet music, a whole separate line for cannons, and then when they should fire. It's must have been kind of were those cannons Were those cannons tuned in D major? <laughs> I'm going to remember that for a very long time. I don't know where I, I pulled that. that from. I don't there know. is a canon in D major, but oh, it was written yeah. in the 1500s, and gotcha. it didn't have canons. Yeah. You'll, you'll know it if you hear it. Different canon. <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. That's too funny. Uh, too funny. Spelled exactly Let's the same. Let's move on down this list again, because then we have an obvious one. Popular or well-known music. And in yeah. fact, you cited that example. That would be the case of Hooked on a Feeling. Yeah. Kind of is that. Well, that's almost why it's not... It, you really need to fit the groove. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it is just something. I guess one of the part of the reason you enjoyed it is because it is just so shocking and and flip side yeah. to the to the what the um 
to what the actual content is. Yeah. Then again, I still say, once they show you the cast, the way it's presented in that trailer, the second they show the cast, and you see the lineup of this hodgepodge of characters, yeah, the comedy isn't not, isn't lost on me. Um, it's pretty... It, it's kind of a ha-ha. <laughs> Well, right. one place that so, they actually pop do... Pop music can do that, at least. That, that they use that same idea of pop, old, new, borrowed, blue, um, is in actual, outside of movies, video game trailers. It's a very common theme to use yes. well-known music. One of my favorites is the Borderlands 2 rendition of The Lion Sleeps Tonight, where the scene work is video game carnage of the exploding animals of the Serengeti alien world <laughs> to a wee and actually, my favorite game trailer, which had a popular song, was um, made famous by Donnie Darko, a movie actually. Gary Jules covered um, Mad Season, slowed it down, made it beautiful. Mad World. Mad World. Um, and <laughs> the, there was a trailer for Gears of War that was very haunting that they used that song in. And, and it one of the, really. One of the actors is. Well, not one of the actors, one of the characters from the video game. Bad company, yeah, they're singing it and it's yeah. all eerie. And then one of the other characters turns around and is like, What? What the heck are you singing? The dreams in which I'm dying are the best drive I have? What does that mean? And totally destroy the scene work. And it's 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 a hysterical little bit and does explain the video game perfectly. Well, considering... Haunt, eerie haunting with plenty of great one liners up to come. Considering there are marketeers behind these things you got to consider as as to as to how it works in the end and how it actually sells the product that's really the goal with this stuff so it's not really time to be talking about the art of it all or or what's a trope and what's repetitive and uh you know there's definitely moments where you see it does work perfectly like even going back to uh you just mentioned the borderlands 2 uh uh trailer that that trailer just think of what people are going to be doing at that point i mean sometimes people don't always play a video game to immerse themselves in the art sometimes it is just you know shoot up stuff and and just feel really really relaxed while doing it which is the essence of a lot of uh really just relaxed first person shooters kind of thing so that's perfect a wimbo way just bring that in while you're actually shooting up crap i I mean i think i think that the, the the conclusion we're coming to is really that that with with a lot of this stuff and i mean there's probably even more examples we can cite but it really comes down to it's more about marketing than music at this point. Even though sometimes it works so well, it really comes down to just the marketing of doing what's best, even if it's not what's best, but trying to do what's best to get the movie out there and remember. Well, the trick is, looking back on it, a lot of times it can be very, uh, wow, like that was a strange choice, sort of. Like, um, you know, we were previewing a few trailers earlier and it's just like well i don't remember that in the movie but that's because it's a different department it's not the people they don't always bring in soundtrack sometimes they do and that's probably when i think it's done best but often they haven't proven yet that the music in the movie will sell so they use what they know and that's a great point because music in sequels are you, you really seem to find the most repetition of soundtracks Perfect example is Harry Potter. Yeah, they Another always great play example, the Harry Potter theme. Uh, Terminator. Yeah. Superman. These uh, sequels, their trailers, all you have to do is play three chords of the iconic song, and boom, everyone is riveted, 
everyone's excited because Harry Potter's oh, a perfect example. It's the new Harry Potter. You're done. There you go. Yeah, that's that's it. It's coming. Everyone, everyone hushes. Everyone be it's quiet in the theater because they know they're seeing the preview for the next big movie. Or Terminator is even bigger. It's just. Da, 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 boom! Everybody knows there's gonna be a big hunking robot out there with big old guns blowing stuff up. I personally think those are some of the. I mean, that's the easy job, of course, because once yeah. you have, once you've proven that the movie will sell, well, great. Then you can use it. So then it's a no-brainer for yeah. any good marketer to use the mu- but, movie in the music. But they don't music always do it, and it, it, it's not as powerful if they don't do it. it it's that power. That you're you're equating the new thing to the old, and in this case, it's mm. the making the sequels. Say you, you say the sequel is going to be as good, if not better. So if you're starting with a good movie, people have their expectations of greatness. True. Yep. And that that is a big thing, and that is that's why I think you you, you do have to use score work even in the original theatrical trailers if you're working with the score i again i think it's usually your better bet because at least then you know that some thought uh and i'm speaking from the marketer's perspective yeah. uh you you know that at least some other department has put some thought into this blend between the yeah. music and the movie so then if you put that in the trailer well then you're gonna you're gonna at least give people a better representation of what the movie's about then again, some people like that whole teaser trailer thing, in which case a teaser trailer may have very little to do with anything uh, with the film, just sort of a general sense. Sometimes yeah. they'll have a, a pretty good... So you can do a lot with a teaser trailer. For instance, sure. I think the original uh, Jurassic Park teaser trailer was <laughs> literally just the emblem. Yeah, it yeah, was. That was it. With a little bit of the original creepy, scary score that we had about the emblem which was what we actually hearkened back in our John Williams discussion as something that was really freaking awesome. Yeah. And the case of uh, Star Wars, the prequels, you know, regardless of what the prequels turned into and whatnot, the second, in 1999, when people were introduced to the fact that, oh my God, we are going to get a brand new Star Wars movie after how long? That, that blew people's minds. Yeah. They needed to be reminded a little bit. And it was almost the same kind of thing. Like, you could... Uh, just like what you said with uh, you know Harry Potter, all you have to do is sort of replay a little bit. I don't actually think they use the Star Wars because they thought it would actually be more tasteful if they uh, they didn't use the main theme. If they went for something a little vaguer, so they it was used just sort of, of this score work. light well, eeriness combined with, let's say, a, a panorama of Coruscant, a planet no one had seen before in the in the originals. Right. Well, that's just like even with the new Superman movie, love it or hate it. Warner Brothers owns that Superman theme, but they didn't use it. They didn't use it. They just had a trailer of a little bit of voiceover, ambience, and showing Clark as a child with a towel on his back. You know where this is going. Superman's so iconic. You see a red towel on a little boy's back. You know where that's going, and you don't have to do more. You know, and that can be powerful too. The lack of music. That's too. when. That's when you're it's working true. with uh, products that have a, a definite following an identity to work to to ha- to start with that already. transcends genre yeah yeah especially i was actually curious earlier considering i i cited uh beck as being one of the writers for the headlining song of eternal sunshine it wasn't on the trailer or anything yeah. it was used very prominently in the film uh as part of the soundtrack the rest of which i think was composed by john bryan who did a great job filling the rest of it out and fitting the the little quirky theme that the movie had going for it. but the trailer focused purely on 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 content it it yeah. focused on 
on the idea of the Lacuna Corporation as as a commercial in the very very beginning, and then just intermittent dialogue throughout, very little music. Same with the Scott Pilgrim soundtrack. He Beck is very prominently featured because he wrote all the music that the band plays. Yeah. Yet in the trailer, it's mostly bands that A aren't featured on the soundtrack, and B, it's also dialogue. It's an ex- it's pretty much the plot of the movie. Right. To, from beginning to midpoint. And then, of course, we get the last thing, and that is specially composed music. Music that often is composed specifically for the film, but still you're bound to uh, experience a little bit of a disconnect, such as what I got when I saw the Matrix trailer, because I had actually never seen the Matrix trailer before. I've seen the movie dozens upon dozens <coughs> of times, yeah. and people define the Matrix, uh, especially its soundtrack, as epic, very epic, very influential i think yeah. to any movie that has happened in the last decade usually i believe the word uh, the best described word is dude <laughs> with the uh trembling That's what people felt the trembling time. inflection of the voice because the the sound effects that were used on like the very first jump scene in the film when you see trinity <sighs> jump it is very uh i forget exactly who composed that but it's um you oh it sends chills up my spine still it's to this video day. game yep. meets yeah. Uh, uh, post-apocalyptic world. It occurs when Neo does anything especially cool or especially yeah. impossible. A lot yeah. of reverb and vibration and everything. <laughs> reverb, all that reverb. But uh, the trailer has the trailer, completely unique music. Yeah, it's completely separate. It was written especially for The Matrix, and yet at the same time you wonder how much knowledge about the film did he have going into it. Because yeah. me knowing the film, of course, especially now for you know upwards of a decade plus... It, it's 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 difficult for me to go back into that and try to see his interpretation of an aesthetic that we all collectively know so well at this point. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a risky thing, and yet people have made uh, big careers off of doing this and sort of walking that line. One of them was uh, composer John Beale, who began scoring trailers in the 1970s, and uh, yeah, he's kind of dominated this uh he did that matrix uh soundtrack along with aladdin titanic forrest gumped uh gumped gump <laughs> i pulled a map it's uh actually a pretty just, incredible list last samurai well all you really got to know is that he did ferris bueller hunt for red october <laughs> all you got to know right. is here's more names no 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 <laughs> ferris bueller hunt for red october police academy and bram stoker's dracula they're he has done over the place in terms so of genre. So he's done every genre. He has experience doing every single thing. What is it? In the neighborhood of about 40 or 50 or 60 major motion pictures it's that he's done. It's a hefty amount. Because, yeah, he know, I guess he's a friend of the marketeers. He know, they, he's a proven selling point, so they'll go back to him. Yeah. And it's not really about, again, the YouTube generation that we're uh, accustomed to at this point, where we can just go back and see, hmm, I wonder what that trailer for that movie that's already been out and gone now for many, many years. It's a pointless thing. It never would have been done before. That's purely YouTube generation oriented. Previously, the trailer would have been dead and forgotten. In which case, it has one ser- one service, one purpose, that it's done. Yeah. So, but all those, <laughs> all those movies, all those movies we just named, um, I remember... A great deal of them. We we saw a few of them. He does a hell of a job of basically putting something new to something that, on reflection, like Aladdin. You know all the songs from Aladdin, and it, the trailer really does have a very different feel to it. 
that kind of magical mysticism that you expect, but has nothing to do with this music. Yeah, and then it also, uh, just to, I guess to wrap that up, uh, you might consider that one of the reasons they have that, I would posit that it is sometimes artistically driven because it does enhance the wow factor. If, for instance, you're denied any of the soundtrack to come, then you do walk into the film and perhaps the not knowing it based on the aesthetic of the trailer, then you interpret it as something completely fresh, something that blew your mind the time you saw it. So what's your reaction? See it again. Tell your friends. Ergo, more money. Right. But on the flip side also, you take a trailer like Titanic where My Heart Will Go On was known before the movie even had a trailer, but they were showing clips of it in her music video, and then this huge trailer comes out featuring that song, and then it's in the movie as and well. And did the trailer feature the song, though? Mm-hmm. Because Titanic was listed here among one of John Beale's works. It might have been a mix. Again, there's also these multiple trailers. And there's multiple trailers. There's that teaser, but also there's music, the long one music that goes videos on for, for like six minutes. But also, songs featured on soundtracks are also ads and trailers for the movies, because a lot of those music videos, when they were prominent, featured clips from movies, and still do sometimes now. True. But when you have something truly iconic, all you got to do is take, for example, the Halo 3 creation, the video game when that was first announced. You heard you, the, the, it was a big old three in the script with dun 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 the iconic, uh, what's the word I was looking for? Motif. In the vein of Terminator 2 and those others. Harry and that's just another and, example. Her, Halo was obviously a proven seller by that point. But it, you just heard those five chords and all of a sudden it became at that point the most pre-ordered video game in history right there that's all they needed to do yeah well there's your marketing that's the thing about halo is it's a it was a proven money maker um so i don't think you can really let the art enter into it too much with that so they went that's pure they went they went the harry potter route and just went here you go here's your preview i'm coming from the perspective of the composer so i love to see the original work i understand the purpose of uh of, of the tease, which is a, yeah. a, there's an art of the tease, in fact, especially any good marketer would tell you that. But, you know, I love I love the product um, sort of flushing itself out in a condensed format. That's always nice to see. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, considering we are of the YouTube generation now, and I will look back and I will judge, like it or not, despite <laughs> yeah. how many how many millions gross the movie's made. True. Um, uh, on that, at this point, I think we'll uh, start heading into our uh, wrap-up of the podcast. You have a spam email for us this week. Oh, as always. Why don't I, really? That's true. Males, girls, and also young children can shed belly fat just by cleansing their well-being. Number four. Beverage lot of water. Guess what happens whenever you drink lots of water? That core portion of our physique is accountable for keeping us upright. Lose belly fat. Was that the author? Is lose belly fat? Yeah. Wait a minute. What happened to parts one, two, and three? No, I only saw four parentheses. So. And how is? I think we've been. Teased. Water's not the core that keeps us upright. That would be our spine and musculature. I well, mean, it helps. You know, it's water bad. keeps it's, us it's alive because we're mostly water. It does many other silly. things, but I don't, yeah. I don't. I don't. I, that one's just silly. He's I, not I don't even doing his it. thing. He just, no. he just called it out. That's not, that's not even worth it. You know what got me? Males, girls. And also children. Males, girls, and also children. But no, just the disparity there. Yeah. Why not males and females, or boys and girls? Or men, men and, and women. women. No, males and girls. Masculine. Robots are dumb. Masculine. Yeah, apparently. Feminine. 
and other. So next week, John's bringing us our album. I'm just going to keep moving it along because well, okay. I don't want to analyze this spam. He started it. I did start this he one. Did. Anyway, um, this, is, this is an individual that I don't know very well, and everyone keeps talking about it on the air. Because well, me and Steve are very versed I with know, this they're, individual. They're, they're, they love him. They really do love him. So I felt obligated. Nay, 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 privileged to bring this individual because I get to bring something that I know they would like and I get to be all like, me, 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 this is not good. Um, <laughs> That's or, your goal with this Or me, 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 this is really good. Les Claypool. This could be under your pick, remember. Les, they yes, get it to, is. They had to sort your rings. I'm okay, I'm okay. Les Claypool's Duo de Twang and his al- their album, Four Foot Shack, which we think is a covers album may not be he covers his own there song. are some covers there on it for covers. sure mixes i don't rem- i don't recognize them all but just because i don't recognize them doesn't mean they're all not covers and from the preview we took it seems to be most if not all acoustic and weird it's unique to say the least that's the thing though me and matt are familiar with Liz claypool's solo work and it uh <laughs> this is an interesting thing you're you're going into this blinder than i think we are yeah yeah Curious. Well, that's only this is the first time I think one of us has done this too. Pick something because we know the other two like it. Yeah. How, how altruistic of you, John? Well, really? well, I looked at it this way. Matt chose Beck, which I was going to choose, and Steve <laughs> asked me not to choose my other choice because he wanted to choose it. So you can I, expect that the week the, after the, next. My, the two the two gentlemen on my sides here chose what I was going to choose. So I picked one for the team. Well, I'll, I'll I'll fill in just a little about Les Claypool for anyone that knows his solo work pretty off the wall. Yeah. Then again, Primus's work was pretty off the wall. But then again, Les Claypool was sort of that was sort of Les Claypool's brainchild with more filled out instruments and, and a uh, a. And Les Claypool is pretty off the wall. Period. They would cross check him, I think. Yeah. You know, there'd be some checks and balances, I think, with the system of Primus. But uh, this is gonna get pretty loony. It's gonna get pretty loony, and he's Yay. had enough loony workout. And on that note, as always, music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. Just, it's just so good.